0: Your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. Watch left field deep. Bam going back, looking up. He will watch it fly. And 29 other MLB clubs. 2-2 pitch on Trout, and he blasts
1: one. Way back. Goal. for it. Cody Bellinger. It's one out. He so
0: he's your home run derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe. From spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments, we have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast
2: Live. A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. You know what? It really doesn't get any better than this. When you think about how lucky you are when your office is basically a press box and your view is of a major league baseball field, I've been so fortunate in my career over the years to do so many shows, whether it was A's or it's Raiders, and just be here when the stadium's empty, everybody's gone, the guys are downstairs just working on the field. It's got a whole different feel to it. Now, obviously, you love the stadium when it's packed, but when it's just you and a few other people, it's, it's pretty cool and hanging out here after a win. Yeah, a win when it didn't look good and it looked like this was going to be a rough show and it was going to be a rough postgame show cuz man, we're down to the nitty gritty. There's what 23 games left? There's only 23 games left. It's crazy. But that's what happens when you win. I just saw my guy, Mark Langston, on the way out. They're heading to Chicago. And Terry Smith, and they're like, oh, God. I mean, these guys are dreading it. What are you talking about in Baltimore? What are you talking about in Detroit and Kansas City and just all these different places? It's miserable. Winning is what it is all about. Winning is fun. Winning is the greatest deodorant ever. You win, and it cleans up the worst stink that there is, and that's what the A's are doing. and a, And a win like this today is one that really starts to set you up to finish this thing this thing strong, because they could easily lose this today, and then all of a sudden we're looking up at the scoreboard, what's going on with it with, with Toronto and Tampa. Well, you didn't gain any ground on Cleveland because they lost. Teams need to separate themselves. Now, you've, had, you've got the leaders in the clubhouse. They've all done their job when you look at the standings. you know We're talking about the wild card, but the Yankees, they've done their job. When you look at Houston, same deal. They're not looking back. They're all going to be able to set themselves up and get ready for the postseason. Houston right now has a nine-game lead over Oakland, and New York has a 10-game lead over Tampa, and Minnesota right now has a -a five-and-a-half-game lead over Cleveland, and that could be six by the end of the night. We'll keep you updated on all the scores going on here uh, in Major League Baseball. But the separation, and that's where some people are saying, well, this year's kind of boring. Well, the only race that's still out there because (laughs) – The Dodgers looking to win, unprecedented, really, when you look at the National League West. Seven straight years, they're looking to win the division. That's impressive. They lead their division by 18 games. And it's not like Arizona stinks. They're 73 and 67, still in the wild card hunt. But that division far over. You've got Atlanta there on top of Washington. By seven, we'll talk to Ron Washington a little bit about his his Braves, as he's the third base coach and infield coach for him. Ron Washington's going to join us in moments. David Force will be here at five o'clock for the GM show, and Jim Leland, one of the great managers of all time, will be here at five thirty. Dave Rennetti, our buddy, VP of Stadium Ops, will be here at six, and then Sarah Langs. I tell you, she's the best follow on Twitter if you're a baseball fan at s Langs on sports. She tweets every day, all day, and everything she tweets is a nugget, a nuggy-nug. The only race still left is St. Louis and Chicago. I guess if Milwaukee really almost wins out, they'd be in it. But right now, Chicago two-and-a-half back of the Cardinals, and Milwaukee six-and-a-half games back. This is my favorite time of the year. Baseball, when it means the most and the start of the football season. As we've already had some big college football games, we've got the NFL starting tonight, Packers and Bears, and then you got big college football on Saturday, NFL week one. I'll be here for Monday night football for the Raiders and the Broncos. Doesn't get, does not it get any bigger than Monday night football? There is no bigger stage than either a Sunday night or a Monday night when everybody's watching. And then baseball, and next thing you know, we're going to have playoffs, this. Everybody has their their favorite time of the year in the sports calendar. Mine is this time of the year. So earlier today, you know, we really wanted to bring on Ron Washington for, for multiple reasons. Obviously, one reason has been we've been talking to a lot of people about the 20 game win streak, which was a historic. It was the best ever in the American League until Cleveland broke it. Wash obviously was a part of that, but there's a lot I wanted to get into with Ron Washington. I wanted to get into his relationship with Billy Bean because I know they're they're very close. They played together at one point in Minnesota and he worked for him for years. You know, Ron's gonna he's gonna have some nice things to say about Bob Melvin. We're going to talk about the O2 team, talk about Eric Chavez. You know, Chavez, their relationship. Eric gave him a, a gold glove for everything he did with him. I had to ask him about Miguel Tejada because at a time when, when Miggy was doing unbelievable things here, you remember it was about the big three. It was about A-Rod, it was about Jeter, and it was about Nomar. Well, Miguel Tejada had a hell of a career and was not only incredible in 2002, winning the MVP, you know, the walk-off hits during the streak, game 18 and 19, but just his overall career here with the Oakland Athletics, and everybody really thinks a lot about his offense. They don't think a lot about his defense, so I want to ask Wash about his defense a lot of respect for him as a teacher. You know, we we see these we see these older guys in uniforms and we don't think about them as teachers or coaches. But they are. That's their job. They love to do it and then, you know that's you know at times when the A's May may not be so hot. and You talk to Bob Melvin. Bob Melvin will tell you, you know, one of the things that when you do have a younger team, he loves the teaching aspect of teaching the game, how people learn the game, how they learn the game together. One of the reasons why this group is special is because a lot of these guys learn to play together in the minor leagues. And the coaching is consistent from level to level to level. So when you get here, you know what's expected of you. You know, there always used to be the Oriole way or the Dodger way, and that's something you want to have. We talked to Fran Reardon recently about it, you know, about he and Bob Melvin, and and we've talked to Bob about communication with Fran. You know, everybody needs to be on the same page. Everybody needs to be on the same page and be pulling on the same rope. So we've teased you long enough because we know how much this guy means to this organization and how much this organization means to him all the great years. Earlier, we caught up with Ron Washington, always special to bring him back. Here is Wash. Well, it is an absolute honor to have on an A's legend. What this man did as a coach for the Oakland Athletics, and he's doing it now with the Atlanta Braves as they're having a fantastic year. Ron Washington is with us. Wash, always great to bring you back with the Athletics and the green and gold. How have you been?
3: I've been great, and it's always nice to talk baseball that uh, the green and gold can hear.
2: So we celebrated yesterday the 17th anniversary of the 20-game winning streak and got a chance to talk to Scott Hattaberg about the pinch hit home run. We got a chance to speak with uh, Mark Mulder and what he recalled because – you know, it just wasn't that twentieth game. You had the the two walk offs from Miguel Tejada in game eighteen and nineteen of the streak. When you look back seventeen later, seventeen years later, what do you look at most fondly about that winning streak, your time with the A's?
3: Well, I look at the when it begins. Um, you know, David Justice got on the bus when we first left and I think we went to Kansas City and he said we would be going on a 10-game uh, road trip, and we should come back with nine wins. And we came back with 10. And we came home for a seven-game road homestand or six-game homestand. And he said, shoot, we should get five out of six. We won six in a row. And from that point on, you know, it just came down to us just playing the type of baseball that we've been playing, pitching the ball, catching the ball, and getting timely hitting. And that's exactly what it took through the whole 20 games, pitching, defense, and timely hitting.
2: You know what was what was fascinating yesterday about Mark Mulder was Mark said it wasn't until he got to St. Louis did he realize the veteran presence on that ball club and and really O one O two how much it helped young guys like him. You know we we think of the the, the star young players. You think about you know the Cy Young with, with Zito and Tejada being the MVP. But talk about how the veteran guys like Justice, really helped these young guys get over the top?
3: Well, you know, he brought that presence. I I think we already had a a young core that uh, knew how to play together, and they played together in the minor leagues. And, um, you know, we just had an attitude that every night we took the the field that we had a chance simply because of the pitching that we had and the pride that we took in catching the ball. And, um, you know, from that point on, you know, we used to just play and then get one base hit through the whole game, and we'll win it. And uh, that's what—that's exactly what what we were about. We were about playing nine innings, and whatever it took to win it, we did it. And every day we came to the ballpark. We came to the ballpark to prepare to do just that: win ball game.
2: And talk about the craziness of that win, the 20th straight win, where you have the big lead, you got Tim Hudson on the mound, you think this is a no-brainer, all of a sudden KC comes back, and then you have the moment of Scott Hatterberg hitting the biggest home run of his career.
3: Well, to be honest with you, um, we never felt comfortable. We really never felt comfortable because of the way the game was flowing. And then um, Mike uh, had a big... First baseman they had, I can't think of his name, when he hit the grand slam. Sweeney, uh, Mike Sweeney? Sweeney, it was Sweeney. He hit the grand slam and put him closer. And, you know, then we begin to say, okay, we got to score more runs, we got to score more runs. But, you know, the thing about those guys, they always did what was necessary. And um, so when Hatterberg stepped up there and then hit the home run that that, won that 20th game for us, um, to be honest with you, it was a great feeling. But it certainly wasn't anything that we was concerned about. We still felt like we were going to win that game. But he put the icing on the cake, and that was tremendous.
2: And little did we know at that time that this team was being looked at and was going to have a best-selling book written about it. And then after the the book Moneyball, then you're going to have Brad Pitt playing Billy Bean, and it's an Oscar-nominated film. You guys had no idea how big this was going to get. When you look back, how crazy it, you and Scott Hatterberg, both playing a big part in the book and the movie.
3: Well, you know, you look back on it, and it was one of those times where early in the year, we wasn't so sure who we were, you know. uh, We had made so many changes, but uh, one thing we had in that clubhouse was togetherness. Uh, We had accountability Uh, toward each other in that clubhouse. And that's the one thing that kept us going. We was responsible for each other. It wasn't always the same guy that's doing it. Although one night, Miguel, two nights in a row, Miguel Tejada came through, Eric came through. I mean, it was the whole team that came through, but it all started on that mound with our pitching staff. And to be honest with you, you never thought that uh, today, 17 years, as you say, we would still be talking about it. Matter of fact, Katrina destroyed my uh, plaque with the 20 victories on it. And um, when I came there as a Texas Ranger manager, uh, they renewed the plaque for me. So that was a wonderful feeling also.
2: Well, of course, because what you mean in A's history as a coach and and helping so many guys, you've been so instrumental. And we'll definitely get into Marcus Simeon a little bit later. How did you feel about your portrayal in the movie and, and also in the
3: book? Well, you know, the only thing about it that, that that confused me, I never did my work on the sideline. You know, the guy that played me, he was on the sideline uh, yelling out to these guys and he was catching catching balls, calling them a picking machine, but uh, doing workouts, he wasn't doing the game. That was the only thing. Other than that, you know, when you make a film, some things are embellished, but the true story behind it was that uh, – Billy Bean and his group used to just get guys and bring in our clubhouse that everyone thought was finished, and they would have super years with us because the the way our clubhouse was constructed. Um, as I said, we was already in our clubhouse as being accountable to everyone in that clubhouse and everyone that came in. They fell in line. You know, when we when we got Big uh, Frank Thomas, when we got David Justice, we got Tim Raines. Um, we even brought back Ricky Henderson one year. Nothing ever changed in our demeanor and how we went about our business and um you know that has a lot to do with the way Billy Bean and them ran the organization, the way Maka and, and, and Art Hall ran the, the the team itself and the, the responsibilities that the players took on. Um it was just a wonderful time and um you know, I know they can say that we never went further than the first half, except for one year we, we ended up going to Detroit and they ended up sweeping us. But from that point on it was everyday business and you have to love that situation I know I did I enjoyed every year that I've ever had in Oakland
2: so you played with Billy Bean and then you worked with Billy Bean talk about your relationship with him because you guys go way back together
3: what I love most about Billy is honestly you always knew where he was coming from you always knew how he felt he never hit his feelings he always wore him out on his sleeve and most of the time he was right about the things he complained about so um and and he was a he was a tremendous ball player. He never made it to the point where everybody thought he would make it. But, uh, you know, the first time I met him, he came in. He met us in New York. He went five for five. He, we just had gotten him from um, – I think we had gotten him from the Mets. Um, but, you know, things just never went right as far as the superstardom that he had when, when he came over there. But I tell you what, he certainly know how to handle individuals, and he's a person that I owe a lot to. And I'll never forget that.
2: You know, let's talk about some of the guys that, that you had here that had great success in the infield, and we we think of Eric Chavez as one of the greatest defensive third basemen that we have ever seen. He gave you one of his gold gloves because of all the work and how you mentored him. Talk about what it was like coaching Eric.
3: Well, you know, the first time that I got a chance to meet Eric, I got a list from the minor league director, uh, and he had all kind of... Things on his list that Eric couldn't do. And I said, Well, if he can't do these things, what is he doing in the big league? So the way I handled things, I went to Eric and I wanted to get it from straight from Eric. And he said, Wash, I catch the ball. My problem is I throw. So the only thing that I ever worked with Eric on is his footwork. And from that point on, the rest is Eric. Uh, he deserved all the credit for all the gold gloves that he got. I remember one day they said, Do you think Eric can get a gold glove? I said, I think Eric can get a gold glove, but Eric got to want that gold glove not because I think he can get that gold glove. Well, Eric went out there and he put in the work, you know. Nobody knows. Uh, We hit the field every morning at 8 o'clock. Eric was out there every morning at 7.30. Uh, He would get to the ballpark at 5.30 in the morning. He would make sure that his back, you know, he was having problems with his back, but he was making sure that his back was always able to go out there and do what he had to do. And he was out on the field at 7.30 every morning. Eric earned everything that he got out of it. And I remember one time someone – mentioned to me after uh, when he got late in his career about, well, he's always heard. I said, holy, you're going to look at Eric first six, seven, eight years, he played every day. We could not pry him out of that lineup. And when we lost Mark McGuire and then we lost uh, Jason Giambi, Eric stepped up and became the leader in that club. And um, he's a wonderful man. Uh, He's a wonderful person. Um, You know, he did a lot for that organization. And people don't know how often he played hurt. And um, that's the thing I admired about him the most. He never complained about anything. All he ever did was show up. He deserved everything he got. And if he wouldn't have hurt his back, I think he would have had 10, 11 straight gold gloves, without a doubt.
2: You know, you think about that era, and that era had so many great shortstops. And not enough was said about Miguel Tejada. Everybody want to talk about Jeter and Arod and Nomar Para. We know how good Miggy was offensively, but talk about how good he was also defensively.
3: Another one that put in the work, put in the time, Um, he worked his butt off. He was a tremendous shortstop. He had tremendous range. And the one thing we had to make sure with Miguel was he would go left and right and get balls and wouldn't finish it. And the one thing I always told him, anybody can go left and right and catch a ball, but those that are going to be recognized are those that can finish the play. And he worked, and he became a tremendous shortstop. And as you said, he never got the credit for it because of he was always fighting the Derek Jeter's. But uh, he meant a lot to our organization the years that he was there, and he was a big part of all the winning that we done there. And um, he's always gonna be someone that'll be huge in my heart. And um, I'm just happy, I'm just sad that when he left Oakland and he went to uh, Baltimore, things didn't continue in that direction. Well,
2: and, and then probably one of your greatest successes is a, is a guy that we see every single day. And I'm so proud of Marcus Simeon. I think we all are. Because we watched how when you showed up and you basically broke him down and got him to go from scratch, and the fact that Marcus worked so hard with you every day and he he did it in front of everybody, where some big leaguers would not want to do it in front of everybody – and feel so vulnerable. Marcus did it in front of everybody. Every single day. And he has truly turned himself. Into one of the best shortstops. In the game. How much do you just admire him as a person. For letting you come in. And change him into one of the great infielders. In the game now.
3: Well it's, it's a bunch of things that happen. Number one. Billy Bean wanted him to be a shortstop. He and Dave Force. And number three you definitely can't forget about Bob Melvin. Bob Melvin allowed me to come in there and be a part of that family. And number four, Marcus, the first time I met him in Tampa Bay, I told him if he want to ever reach where he's capable of being, he's going to have to put in the work. And that work's going to be consisting of him coming out here every single day, going through the basics of what it takes to be an infielder, learning all the nuances of being a shortstop and an infielder. And if he's willing to do that, um, I can help him. I can help him get where he want to get. But I can't help him if he's not willing to put in the time. Well, the rest is history. Marcus put in the time, and the thing that I admire the most is all that time we put together. He's held on to it because I'm no longer there. And as a as a as a teacher or a coach, um, all you can do is give your knowledge and your wisdom. But if your pupil cannot apply your wisdom and knowledge, goes for naught. Well, my wisdom and knowledge didn't go for naught because Marcus Simmons is that type of person that applied, that was willing to work. He wasn't ashamed of, of being seen, and he did it, and he deserved all the credit for it. All I did was put the brakes down there, and he followed the road.
2: Well, I tell you what, he's going to get a big contract coming up here. He's going he's to need to at least take you to dinner.
3: Well, he always do that anyway. He's a, he's a very special man. He's a very special daddy, and he's a very special player. And I think Oakland is uh, beginning to see that. A lot of times, when you put in the time, it may not look like things are going to happen. But if you put in the time and you're serious about putting in the time and you're dedicated to putting in the time, good things happen, and good things are happening for the Oakland A's and Marcus Simeon. That's for certain.
2: Let's end on this. The ball club you're with now, the Atlanta Braves, you got a lot of talent, you got a lot of young talent and we're seeing a resurgence, and Josh Donaldson, you know, a guy that we love here in Oakland, and right now you're leading your division. You're going to be going to the playoffs. Just talk about what just, you know, how Atlanta has changed, and they've become such a strong team in the NL East.
3: Well, the the one thing that always comes up is the talk during spring training that we didn't do anything over the winter to strengthen our club. Well, what strengthen our club is, the basis of what you're talking about, our young players. Our young players have gotten better. They have worked their tail off, and they have gotten better. And this is a tremendous group. And this group, I'm only comparing them right now, and I'm the only one that can do that. I'm comparing them to the group I had in Oakland, Um, to Chavez, to Miguel, to Mark Ellis, to Jason Giamis and uh, to Scott Hatterbergs and all those guys on the infield. Uh, They came and put in the time, man, and these young kids put in the time. They don't question what you're trying to do. They just show up every day and go about their business. And the the results is us being back in first place. And we're back in first place simply because of our young talent. They have gotten better. And that's the one thing that I think any any coach, any manager should be proud of is that their youth get better. I was gotten better, and they're the reason we are where we are along with guys like Donaldson, Freddie Freeman, Mark Capes before you got hurt. We brought in um, um, McCain, the catcher, who's a a winner. Uh, So when you put all of those type of veterans with those young kids that come to play every day, the results is what you're looking at right now. Uh, We haven't accomplished anything yet. We're in a good position. We have to play the schedule out. And I can tell you this, these kids will play the schedule out. They're not looking ahead. They're looking at one thing today.
2: Wash, you will always be an A's legend. Thank you so much for taking the time. And good luck to your Braves the rest of the way in the postseason. And we'll catch up with you in the offseason.
3: Okay, and thank you for having me on. And go A's. Yeah,
2: there you go. Go A's. Get this thing to the postseason. Where are we? Top of the third Toronto right now has the lead Over Tampa Bay in St. Petersburg. That's a YouTube game. YouTube game. Uh, Talk to my guy Langston. He's gonna be one of their games coming up. Is gonna be a YouTube game. He's gonna be doing it, and it's funny. So I mean, you're baseball fans. You know Mark Langston. He was a terrific pitcher. So at first, when he was doing it, I can't remember was last year or the year before. He was like, "This is this this is terrible." Like, why are we doing this? This isn't going to work. And then all of a sudden he started to realize there's people all over the world watching the game. Because you find there is a difference between a Facebook game and a YouTube game. Do you know what the difference is between a Facebook game and a YouTube game? Commander Cody. And hello. First time they hear from you today, even though I've seen you all day long.
1: Yeah, I've seen you since what? 10 a.m. this morning. So um, I, I, th- I would say would the difference be the advertising? As Billy Bean, Brad Pitt, and Moneyball would go, Err. do you have it for me? Uh, yeah. There's a lot of drops in here now that we have. But. <laughs> you
2: got – I like a guy who's got a little hair on his ass. No, that's not it. You want to try again?
1: I don't use Facebook anymore, so I don't know how what's different about it now. But uh, I don't know the answer. I'm not going to try to lie. You don't, and have fa- you don't have Facebook anymore. I deactivated on 12:01 on New Year's, New Year's technically New Year's Day. How do you feel about it? Vindicated. It's great. I try not to use social media as much. That's the whole part of the meditation and you know mental awareness and mindfulness that I have. But social media will drag you down, and I try not to use it as much. I rarely ever even look at my Facebook page. Some people use it for, like, like – I can understand for you and, you know, f- and like, people – Family, kids. Fa- family. Yeah. They want to keep a with family and kids and, yeah. and everything like that. Like, for me, my mother's on Facebook, and my dad is not. My dad barely knows how to operate his flip phone, so we don't oh, have to about Oh, the old flip that. phone. Yeah. When I go home there ne- next week, he's probably going to tell me he needs to get a new cell phone. And, no,
2: stick with a flip phone. You know what's great about a flip phone? They always worked.
1: Uh, It still works. This is about five years old.
2: Wow, the old flip phone. I love those things. Okay, here is the difference. You have to be a a Facebook user. You have to actually have an account to get onto Facebook to then watch a Facebook game. You don't need that for YouTube. Anybody can go to YouTube and watch the game. So at one point, while Langston's doing it and he thought this was lame, he started to realize worldwide they had like six million people watching it. Six million. We're sitting here bragging about our numbers with A's Cast and A's Cast Live. Six
1: million people. And I like what they do with it. They have the, you have the play-by-play guy who's like in the middle, someone like a Scott Braun from LB Network, and then you pull someone like a Langston who would do it for the Angels, and you could pull someone like Dallas or Fosse to do it for the A's, and you have a guy from each team, and then the guy, the play-by-play guy who's straight down the middle has no affiliation to either team. I think that's a smart idea. I love, I love that. We talked to Haberman about this a couple weeks ago.
2: Yeah, Guy Haberman, our old colleague. Yeah, but those are for one-offs. What, what do you think your YouTube – if your games were on YouTube, right? And you get all the time, oh, my God, if it's not on cable or if it's not on terrestrial radio – uh, I can guarantee you right now, NBC Sports Bay Area and NBC Sports California are not getting $6 million to watch a game. And then how valuable would someone like Shohei Otani be if 162 games were on YouTube? And not only do you get the American public, you get the worldwide and really the Japanese baseball fans, I mean, the numbers are crazy. When you're talking about 6 million people watching a baseball game, that is unreal. Well, now joining us here on A's Cast Live, as he does every single week, it's the general Manager show, David Force. David, a wild win for your athletics today, but these are the kind of wins that give you that special mojo and the shot as you head towards the postseason.
4: Yeah, that was a good one. I was, uh, I'll be honest, I'm I'm always a little uh, skeptical about scheduling a a chat with you after a game because you never know what's going to happen. You never know what kind of mood everybody's going to be in. But, but yeah, that was a fun one. <laughs>
2: hey, hey, I agree because I'm so moody. <laughs> who who knows who knows what kind of calls I've been taking? Who know 'cause Because you know, for the post game show, it's supposed to be for the fans. It's supposed to be a roller coaster ride. So one minute we love all of you, the next minute we hate all of you. It's just the way it works. <laughs> but today we're loving you, David.
4: That was a good one. Yeah, a lot of credit to the guys for not uh, not packing it in once we're down five, six, one, uh, you know, you win the first two games of the series, it's, you know, you could be happy just winning two out of three and move it on. But uh, our guys hung with it. big, big hit by Fegley to kind of wake everybody up and get us back in it. And then the rest of the lineup did a great job that inning.
2: Did you ever think this would be the way when you drafted AJ Puck, this would be how he'd get his first big league win?
4: <laughs> I don't know that you, uh, you draw it up. I mean, I think we've talked in the past about, some guys coming up to get their initial workout of the pen, so I guess it's, it's always a possibility. But, uh, yeah, we just, we've just we been looking for the right spots for AJ to, to, to kind of work them in. And we've had so many tight games and having to use the same guys, Hendricks and Soria and Blake and Deakman and just kind of wearing these guys out. So uh, it's nice to get them a day off and, and for the rest of the group to, to contribute and prove they can be part of a winning game.
2: You know, there's this Twitter handle stats and they had this unbelievable article and it's about how certain teams, especially the Houston Astros, are, are really changing the way they approach the three 2 account, uh, a three 2 count like the, the, a lot of times they won't swing because a lot of times, you know, the numbers will show it that umpires aren't calling strikes on three. The, the closer pitches, they're not calling strikes, and then they start showing you, like, all the different counts, you know, the percentage of when strikes are called from when they're not. It was really fascinating. But this whole thing about the 3-2 count, I read this article, and then look, look what we had today. Your guy's not swinging on the 3-2 count, and the numbers show that umpires don't like to call strikes traditionally uh, on the 3-2 count.
4: Well, I haven't seen that article specifically, but uh, I know our guys do a great job working the count. Um, I mean, Profars at bat there was was a great example. He gets down 0-2 and grinds it out, bases loaded. You know, you're always anxious to, to get the big hit. But for all those guys in a row to, to be patient, to take their walks, to sort of pass the baton to the next guy and ultimately culminate in Robbie's triple to put us ahead – Uh, Just a a great clinic in in team baseball.
2: Yeah, I I went over the entire inning about all the pitching changes. I am not a fan of September call-ups. I do not like how (laughs) – and it may be different for front office and I want to ask you about it, but it's just no other sport plays one way for the majority of the season and then changes at the end. How do you feel about it? Do you like it, don't like it, and obviously it's changing.
4: It is going to change, yeah. So you may get your wish next year, whether it's a uh, limit on, on rostered players in September or, or uh, three batter minimum for every reliever that comes in the game. It sounds like uh, the folks at MLB are, are talking about changes. But, you know, we we play within the rules. We, we use what's given to us. I do think there's a lot to be said for uh, having extra arms in September and giving, giving guys – a break. I mean, these guys are all gassed by the time you get through five months of the season it's been huge for us already to have Sean to insert into the rotation, give everybody an extra day. Uh we'll probably take advantage of that again next time through the rotation. Uh, and in the bullpen too. I mean like I said earlier, we're we're using the same guys over and over again and you just can't you can't ride them until uh until you wear them out. So it it from our perspective, I know from Bob and Emo's perspective, it's It's nice to have some extra fresh arms.
2: Yeah, because two pitchers you think about, Liam Hendricks and, yes, Merrill Petit, you guys have gotten so much out of them this year. But at one point, do you start to fear, like, you need them to get you to the postseason. And if you get to the postseason, but you still need them to be able to perform when they get to the postseason.
4: Without a doubt. And, uh, you know, the one thing you have in the postseason, if you're lucky enough to get there, is you have some built-in days off. Um, you know, we've got 16 in a row right now, and that's also something that happens in the postseason. So you've got you got the built-in days off, but you're right you can't you know you can't ride these guys all the way to September 29th and be like, oh, by the way, why don't you turn it on again for another month? Um, so you, you got to keep that in mind.
2: So yesterday had to be great for the front office from a standpoint of watching Sean Murphy become the sixth guy to homer in his debut as an Oakland Athletic. What were your thoughts when you saw that ball go over the fence and he's rounding the bases?
4: It's it's a huge – I know it's a huge sigh of relief for the player. It's a wonderful moment for his family. I mean, we've seen this a few times this year. We saw, you know, we saw Nick Martini's family in Chicago. We saw uh, Seth Brown's family in Kansas City, and you just – you know, it's it's an incredible moment so to see Sean's Mom and dad there last night, and, and for him to kind of get that monkey off his bat, his second career at bat, was was pretty special. And and this is obviously a, a player we think very highly of and think has a long future here in Oakland. And to get that started and, and to see him contribute right away in a port spot uh, was, was fantastic.
2: You know, sitting here in the press box last night watching this game, it just made me think, you know, you got the catcher, you got the center fielder, you got the third baseman, you got the first baseman. Hopefully you got the second baseman. You got this guy at shortstop in his prime, but you have a lot of young players that you control some lot of young talent. This, do you you believe you're setting yourself truly up for a nice run here?
4: I I think we're already in the middle of a pretty nice run. I mean, yeah, uh, we talked about this earlier in in the summer. And I think I've talked to some of the writers about it. You, you, you try not to look forward obviously when you're in the thick of things the way we are right now. Uh, But that's our job is to to set this, this franchise and this team up to to continue to compete. Certainly when you look at at what comes down the road and all the position players you mentioned, plus, uh, plus the pitching and, and obviously guys like fires and Roark and Bailey and Brett have, have been huge this year. And uh, we're going to continue to ride them in 2019, but, Beyond that and you think about uh, you think about Puck and Minaya and Montes and Lozardo and Holmes and Caprillion and Jeffries and Bassett and all these guys, it, it it can be pretty exciting to think about for for a long window of, of success.
2: Yeah, you've got depth going forward, and you've got depth now. I mean, Steven Piscotty at some point will come back. Ramon Loriano's going to be back tomorrow. Uh, you know, How do you get Brown at bats the way he started? So that's all good problems. How do you see this playing out? I think the number one thing is we've talked about Mark Duck-Take-Canna and what he has done for you this year. You're going to bring Laureano back to be your center fielder. We know Mark's bat has to be in the lineup. How do you see this playing out? Like, let's say in the next week,
4: I I think it's gonna it's gonna work itself out. I, I think Bark's gonna be in the lineup. That's the first thing we know. Um, you know, the thing we have to keep in mind with Ramon is that he doesn't just come back and automatically play seven days a week. Um, so so we're gonna have to be judicious with his playing time. Make sure that uh, he is getting days off. You know, he obviously has, his his personality is pretty well documented. You're gonna have to hold him back every day if you're going to keep them out of the lineup but it's something we're going to have to be smart about take our cues from the medical staff and um you know not just not just this weekend not just the road trip you you know you look all the way forward to when we get back from that road trip and play on uh, on a center field that's been sitting underneath bleachers for an entire week not going to be a great great environment out there so all these things go into our equation of how often Ramon plays how much we run him out there and And like I said, no doubt Mark's going to find his way into the lineup. You
2: know, since we do A's cast live from the field before the game, I get to talk to a lot of the players. And one guy I've had a couple conversations with is Ramon Laureano. And he strikes me as that typical athlete. You need to save him from himself because it was like a while ago. He's like, I'm ready to play. I'm ready to get out there. (laughs) He seems like that guy. He was ready to go. But sometimes you have to protect athletes from themselves, don't you?
4: For sure. For sure. And I know Nick Pepper, rest our head athletic trainer, just, you know, puts his palm to his forehead every time he reads a quote from Ramon saying, I'm ready
1: to go. I'm ready to go. And,
4: and which is great. You want the kid to be out there. But we all know, uh, you know, we all know the doctors are in charge here. We have to protect him from themselves. And, and we have to keep him healthy the way we were talking about the pitchers. I mean, we, we don't just need Ramon for the next 24 games or whatever it is. We We need him. Uh, hopefully for another month beyond that, and we'll make sure we keep him healthy.
2: You know, there's been talk about the rotation, maybe expanding the rotation to a six-man rotation because you do have a lot of arms right now. Could we we see it going that way during this rough stretch where you're playing so many straight days?
4: I think you'll see us take advantage of, of, like I said, of Sean being here Uh, And a chance to to get some matchups in our favor, get some guys an extra day. Um, You know, this is as many starts as Brett has made in a long time. And um, you know, we we've looked at some of the other stuff on the the starters, pitching on four versus five days rest and things like that. So I I don't know that you're going to see a true six-man rotation just go through one through six. But I think we're going to pick some spots, maybe keep. One guy on turn and push another guy back, and, and like I said, find some some favorable matchups.
2: You guys had to be thrilled with Mania's first outing in New York,
4: for sure. Yo, oh, yeah, and and thrilled for Sean too. I mean, um, you know, all this rehab that goes on behind the scenes, and guys spend a year away from the game and working hard. It's a it's a thankless job rehabbing, and uh, just so happy for Sean to get back out there. He put us in a position to win that day. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't. It didn't finish the way anybody wanted, but I think, you know, I think it was Brett Anderson who tweeted something. Said, "Hey, not the outcome we wanted, but but thrilled for for Minaya to be back out there. And any time a guy goes through a year-long rehab and uh, and makes his way back to the big leagues, it's uh, it's just a great moment for him."
2: Yeah, you talk to anybody in any sport, and they talk about how they don't feel a part of the team, they don't feel a part of it, and it's just, you know, there's there's a, there's a lot of depressing time. You're, you're a professional athlete. You want to get out there and play. It's your job, but you can't. So whenever we see these guys come back, it's definitely great. And one guy I've been asked about recently, and I go, I, I don't know, because I know he can come back, Frankie Montas, at the end of the year, I think it's like for five or six games, can you give us an update on what's going on with Frankie and how many ga- how many games after the suspension's done? How many games are left in the season?
4: It's 5. He's he's eligible on September 25th. So he is he'll be back active for the last 5 games of the season and that'll that'll be it. Obviously, he's not eligible for the postseason. But um but he's got those five games uh in anticipation of that and uh, and really, just to kind of simulate a full season, we've had Frankie working out in Arizona since he got suspended, he's thrown uh, he's on a number of simulated games down uh, at Fitch Park and count kind of basically pitching four or five innings every fifth day. Um, he threw eighty pitches yesterday and uh, and I think it was. I think it was mentioned somewhere today that if uh, either Vegas or Midland advances to the next round of the playoffs, he's actually eligible to go on a, quote, rehab assignment starting on September 10th. So he's got a chance to pitch in some minor league playoff games if we're lucky enough to go that far in the minor leagues.
2: That could be really interesting. Can you see him pitching in a game or maybe multiple games out of the pen in those five games he's eligible to come back and play in?
4: Yeah, oh, oh, for sure. I mean, obviously, um, you know, we hope those games are meaningful. Well, we, we'd hope to run away from the pack, but the way Cleveland and Tampa are playing, I, I think this thing's going to go down to the wire. So we expect those to be meaningful games, and we've kept them stretched out in case we want to start one of those five. But Frankie's obviously pitched out of the pen in his career as well. And, uh, sure, run them out there five nights in a row. Why not? Um, but, uh, but, no, we'll – When we get closer, we'll figure out the right role for him. But like I said, he's going to be active for those five games, and he'll be a part of the group.
2: Well, we know you're you're rooting for the Aviators, and you're especially rooting for the Aviators against Sacramento, as we've talked about before. (laughs) Uh, How nice was it to see Fran and the boys get game one?
4: It was fun. I went up there to Sacramento last night. It looks uh, just the way it did when we were there in 2012. All of our banners are still up on the outfield wall, which is nice. Um but yeah, I went up there to see those guys. Daniel Mangan pitched well and Bass came alive a little bit. So good for them to take game one. Midland did the same last night against uh Padres double A club in Amarillo. And it'd be a lot of fun to watch both teams uh both teams advance to the championship next week and, and like I said, from a on a practical level, I'd love to have somewhere for Frankie to pitch next week.
2: Yeah, and it is important for your minor league level to win, right? To teach these guys how to win, no matter what level it is.
4: No doubt, no doubt. And all you got to do is ask Pinder and Olson and Chapman and, and that group of guys uh, what it was like coming up in the minor leagues and winning championships in the Cali and the Texas League, and uh, and and developing that culture. So it's always it's always something we've stressed in the minor leagues. Keith Lippman, as long as he's been here. Has, uh, has stressed winning, and we, we go outside the organization to add players uh, just for the purpose of making sure we've got good teams. And it's it's important to everybody from top to bottom.
2: David, great stuff. We appreciate it, and uh, it, it's a sprint to the finish, and it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, enjoy the rest of the week and the weekend. And we'll talk to you next week.
4: All right, Chris. We got a couple more of these pit stops on that sprint to the finish. So I'll catch you next week.
2: Thank you, David. good. David Force, the general manager. A lot to talk about there. We'll do it next, right here. For a
0: little over a dollar a day, you can. Att-
2: yeah, you got to jump the gun on me right there. It's called a tease, Cody. You got to let me finish the tease. Fine, just go to break. Just go to break. Do whatever you want. You're the producer. A's Cast Live continues from
0: Ricky Henderson Field. Here's Chris Townsend.
2: Coming up here at the bottom of the hour. Jim Leland, one of the best managers of all time world champion A lot of respect for him and you know who he's buddies with Tony La Russa. they're super tight i i think we got more out of david on frankie montasa that i the thing more than i thought we were going to get And that's that's very interesting. See, it's so different in the NFL, and that's what fooled me because normally I'm not used to this with baseball. You know, you had Bartolo Colon, and he just, he just disappeared, and then Billy re-signed him. And I remember doing the Billy Bean show on the old station I was on, and my partner said, Billy, why, why would you re-sign him back? And he goes, because he gets people out. You know, oh, he got popped. Okay, well, it happened, but we're bringing him back. Why? Because he gets people out. So I had no idea that you could be suspended and still be around the organization. Didn't know that. Because literally in the NFL, and I have no idea what basketball's rules are because – When's the last basketball player you saw test positive for a PED? Has there been any? I will tell you this in the NFL: when you get popped, and and it's may it's not always it's just not PEDs. You look at the Alden Smith situation. When you get suspended, you are out. You're done. Like Richie Incognito right now, suspended for two games. He cannot come to the facility. I think it's wrong. I think what baseball does is actually right. That, you know, you've made a mistake. The worst thing to do, and especially for like a guy like Alden Smith, and I think we can bring up Alden Smith because the majority of you listening, you're either a 49er fan or a Raider fan. And Alden Smith had his issues with both organizations. And the last thing that Alden Smith needed was to be shut out, shown the door. He needed to have arms wrapped around him telling telling him that we love you and we're going to help you and we're going to help you beat these demons and you're going to continue to play football. And I know that for a fact because my buddy was his agent, Doug Hendrickson another former great San Jose State baseball player, but now one of the top football agents. And when it happened with the Niners, then it happened with the Raiders, you know, Alden needed to be in the building around the coaches, around the players to help him, and he's never going to play football again. So it was one show earlier this year. We were doing the post-game show, and someone asked me about Frankie, and I went... I just assumed it was like football, that he's out. And I got a text from somebody in the organization who said, no, he's not. He's down in Arizona, and he's working out. At first, I thought it was weird, but then I remembered, you know what? That's the right thing to do. Did Frankie make a mistake? Yes, because someone who's covered this long enough, I've covered the steroid era. I've been around this. I know for a fact that everything you possibly want as an athlete that is legal and approved is in that clubhouse. You don't need to go anywhere else. There's no all any powder, you know, like the protein power or any of the stuff, stuff that you want. You know, any of the pills, the stuff that everything that is approved by Major League Baseball is in that clubhouse. And if there's something that you think that you want that's not in the clubhouse, trust me, they'll get you anything you want that's that 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 that's legal and approved. These guys get anything they want. I mean, you know, you want a reservation at a certain place for dinner, you want some type of car, you want they'll get every these this is the big leagues. They'll get you anything that you need that is approved by Major League Baseball. So whenever I hear a guy bought something over the counter somewhere and it's a tainted supplement, my BS meter goes up. Why would you go anywhere? Listen, I'm a guy that's made mistakes in his life too. But I would know Listen, if I need something, I can go right in and say, hey, give me this, and they'll have it right for you. They've got everything you need. These guys get the best care. They get the best medical attention. They're professional athletes. They do everything to keep these guys healthy and strong. So the minute you walk away from them and you go somewhere, you know, here's the code, too, that that you always get. Well, it it was a place that a lot of people buy supplements and that it was tainted, right? They don't want to say the name, but they want to go like, it's GNC. I bought it at GNC. You don't need to buy anything. It's all free down there in the clubhouse. So whenever I hear tainted supplement, I'm not buying
1: it. Found an NBA guy suspended for a PED. Uh, happened a couple weeks ago. Not even a couple weeks ago, a couple days ago. Wilson, Shut Chandler, up. Wilson Chandler of the Brooklyn Nets was suspended 25 games without pay for violating the terms of M- the NBA's anti drug program for testing positive for some word I can't say the league announced last Thursday. It's listener of the steroids. Give perf- it a shot.
2: I want to hear you give it a shot.
1: Ipa. Morelin. Where is it? Uh,
2: uh, I- it's like IPA. Ipa. I- I-
1: Ipa. Yeah, Ipa. Morlin. So it's listed under the steroids, performance-enhancing drugs, and masking agents on the NBA's list of banned substance. Now here's, a, here's what Wilson Chandler had to say. During my, re- my injury rehab process before I signed with the Nets, I was prescribed a treatment that included small doses of a substance recently added to the NBA's prohibited substance list. I did not realize the substance was banned, and neither did the doctor. I accept responsibility and apologize to my Nets teammates coaches, front office, and the fans for this mistake. I will continue to work hard to prepare for the upcoming season.
5: (laughs) They all say the same
2: thing!
1: I didn't know! (laughs) And I love the
2: masking agents, right? Remember when Manny Ramirez with the Dodgers and he tested positive and he was taking that thing that's for pregnant women? or no, He was taking something, it was a masking agent, but it's something that women, it was like a fertility drug. So Manny Ramirez, I didn't know. I was, I was taking something, that was, and I was trying to get pregnant. Now you're taking a masking agent because you're on PEDs. But Frankie Montas was pitching incredible. Frankie Montas is going to have, as you heard from David, five games. If you're looking at some of your guys out there, your starters are leaking oil. Coming down the stretch now he cannot play in the postseason. when you get suspended, you cannot play in the postseason. Could Frankie Montas be starting a game, a critical game down the stretch for the A's to get them into the postseason? As you heard the general manager say right there, he thinks it's going down to the very end because of the way Cleveland and Tampa are playing. How about that? Now, Frankie didn't fare well coming out of the bullpen, but Frankie was a much better pitcher this year. Could he pitch in more than one game? When I say bullpen, think about the opener. You have one guy come in the first inning, then have Frankie
1: come in. The bulk guy. The bulk guy. Uh, As the Angels use the opener a lot, and, well, I mean, they're only, what, 10 games under five hundred. They don't use it right, but...
2: Now, they, do you look at certain, the Yankees now. The Yankees have been dominating with the, with the, with the opener.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned it about Frankie. What he said about him pit, maybe pitching for uh, Fran in Vegas. That would be kind of cool to see. They get past Sacramento, and there's Frankie up there pitching or down, pitching down there in Vegas, the second round of the PCL playoffs.
2: Frankie pitching the championship game.
1: They get called up a couple days later to pitch a pivotal game for the A's on the stretch. He
2: becomes aviator legend Frankie Montas. After only one start. The greatest big-game <laughs> aviator pitcher of all time.
1: Big-game Frankie, I big him. Big-game
2: Frankie. Jesus Lazardo and Frankie Montas leading Vegas. First year, the A's. Are the aviators in Vegas winning the championship? Oh, I can just see it now. Are we efforting Jim?
1: We're efforting uh, Jim.
2: Jim Leland.
1: Great manager when he managed the Pirates. I was young, but they were... They were good with him.
2: Oh, my. They were fabulous with the. When you were a kid and he was managing the Pirates in the three straight years in the postseason, no question. Do we have him? Yes, we do. He's one of the greatest managers of all time. A World Series champion in 1997. A three time manager of the year 1990, 1992, 2006. Gold medal in the World Baseball Classic. Jim Leland joins us. Jim, it's an honor to have you on A's Cast Live with Chris Townsend. Thank you for taking the time.
6: No, no problem. Glad to be
2: on. You know, when we think about managers, you know, we'd love your opinion on the manager we have here and Bob Melvin because the organization was not doing well before Bob got here. And Bob really showed when you have the right manager, a guy that knows how to communicate, a guy that knows how to ha- manage people, a guy that knows how to deal with the front office, boy, it can change things and, and and really start a winning culture.
6: Well, I don't think there's any question about that. Bob and I were together over in a Tiger organization many, many years ago when he was a player and I was managing the instructional league. And, you know, always a student of the game, you know, played in the big league some, obviously, and, uh, I think without uh, without a question, uh, one of the best managers in all of baseball today, and has been for several years. I think a lot of times, you know, back east here, we don't always see the Oakland A's, a lot or the Angels or the Dodgers, you know, because of the time change so much. So I think I think that's part of the reason that he, you know, he might not get recognized as much as he should. Uh, he just won the Chuck Tanner Award here a couple of years ago in Pittsburgh. I went to the dinner here in Pittsburgh in honor of Chuck Tanner, and Bob was the recipient of that award. He's a great manager. There's no question about that. I think he's without without a doubt one of the best in all of baseball.
2: Were there quite a few players that you had over the years that as they were playing for you, where you kind of looked and went, you know what? If that guy actually does want to stay in baseball, I can see that guy as manager quality.
6: Well, you never know about manager because, you know, there's only 30 of those jobs, and they're they're obviously hard to get, so you never really... Uh, you know, think so much about manager per se, but you think about obviously staying in the game in some capacity. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I think you do that a lot. You know, you you get to know the personality of a player. You get to know, there's a lot of players that, you know, watch the game more intensely than other players. That's just the way it is. That's in the minor leagues or the major leagues. There's just certain guys that are, uh, you know, it doesn't mean the other guys aren't into it, but they, they're looking at what the manager does more. They're studying the game maybe a little bit more where you play the infield and all those kind of things. And I think Bob was certainly one of those guys.
2: And you see so many of the managers are catchers. And, of course, you were a catcher back in the day. Why do you think it is that catchers sometimes make the best managers?
1: Well, I think
6: one of the things that pops to your mind right away is the fact that the catcher is a guy that caught all the pitchers and and called all the pitches in those days. You know, we we called our own pitches and, and things of that nature. And I think that you know, you're, you're kind of a student of the game and you learn how to handle the pitching staff. And I think that's the biggest part about managing, in my opinion, is knowing how to handle your pitching staff, uh, knowing how to run a bullpen, uh, you know, knowing when to take the starter out, when to leave him in. You know, it, it's it's uh, there's a little bit of a knack to that. And I think you get some experience of that because of the fact that you were a catcher. And you kind of recognize maybe a little bit quicker than some other guys on the team, you know, when a guy's lost it, when he's doing something a little bit different. You know when his mechanics just aren't right. Obviously, you have a pitching coach there to help you, but I think the the fact that the catcher caught pitchers all his life and called pitches all his life, I, I think that's got a lot to do with it.
2: And I think about communication, because we have analytics, we've got numbers, we've got StatCast, we, we've got we, TrackMan, we've got so much information and so much video out there that sometimes I think even in modern day baseball, we forget how communication between the manager and the players, where they always know where they stand, good or bad, that there's great communication. Talk about that through your career and even today, how that is a skill and a must for a good manager.
6: Well, number one, I think that people underestimate how difficult the manager's job is. I think people have a tendency to think anybody can just do that job today because of all the numbers they put in front of you. And, they, you know, they try to you can try to make you a robot manager. That just doesn't happen. Managing is very difficult. Believe me, I did it for 33 years, 22 in the major leagues. It's very difficult. You know, guys upset they're not getting play in time. Guys upset they have other problems going on. Whatever it may be, you're dealing with those people on a daily basis. And I think the biggest thing is being there for the players, you know, when they're going bad. Because when a player's going good, you know, they got the press, they got the media, they got the fans, they got the general manager, they got everybody on their side. They really don't need the manager. But when you need the manager is when the team's going bad. That's when you need the manager. I think Bob Melvin's very good at that. I think he does a good job of putting out fires. He handles things. Uh, He's just terrific. But I I think people underestimate what a difficult job managing is. It's a very hard job, trust me.
2: And you, and you were in an era when guys started making real money. I mean, some big time money and you managed some guys with some big time egos. So you also have to be able to manage those guys.
6: Well, I think, you know, you're in the people business. That's what you are when you're a manager and you gotta, you gotta, you know, you gotta have the same rules, the same parameters, but you gotta go about it different with each player. I mean, to, you know, to get the best results out of one player may not be the same way you do it with another player. you have to, you have to know all those things. And that's, that's what you're talking about. Your line of communications, uh, you know, it's very important. Uh, You know, I think respect is very important. Uh, You know, and, and you know, you're really in charge of the organization on the field. I mean, you're not the general manager, obviously you're not the owner, but on the field, you're really responsible for the organization's results. And, you know, some teams right now are rebuilding such as the Tigers and things like that. But, you know, you're basically in charge of that, and that's your responsibility, and you, you know, you want to make sure that, number one, you're representing yourself in the right way, and and making sure that, you know, players are doing the right things, that they're professional, the way they go about their business, so, you know, you can talk about uh, information, statistical information, analytical information. We've had that stuff for a long time, if you want to know the truth. Uh, There's more of it today. They focus a little bit more on it today, or at least that's what comes across the media, and I'm not sure if that's as accurate as everybody thinks it is, but you know we've had that stuff for a long time. But you got to be careful. Information's great, but you can't get so consumed in information that you forget about the human element and the player himself. And I think that's very dangerous.
2: You're back with the Detroit Tigers, and we're going to see the Tigers coming into town, and it's going to be three games. Then we have the the suspended game that we're going to replay. So we're going to basically have two games tomorrow. And, and you talk about a rebuild. Rebuilds are not easy, and we're seeing a lot of teams go through it right now. So how do you think it's going so far for the Tigers?
6: Well, I think it's pretty much on schedule. I think what happens with a rebuild is uh, when you're really struggling like we are, it, you know, people are going to say, they all have a tendency to say, well, we understand that it's a rebuild, but we didn't think it was going to be this bad. So it's always a tough ticket when you're going through it. Uh, but, you know, you can't change in the middle of the stream. you got to stay the course, and you got to believe in your people. you got to believe in your players. you got to believe in your minor league system. you got to believe in your scouts, your analytical people, and you got to stay the course. Uh, you can't try to appease some people for, you know, a month or two. You, you have to go about it, and you have to be sold on what you're trying to do, what you're trying to attempt. You know, Kansas City did a good job of it, went to the World Series 1. Houston's done a good job of it. So you just have to stay the course, and I think that's the most important thing.
2: When we start talking about front offices, how, how much are you with the front office and just tell us exactly what your role is.
6: Well, I, I, I'm the, you know, I guess it's a title. <laughs> I really don't, I'm not much on titles, but I'm kind of a, you know, a special advisor to the general manager. Uh, I go to spring training uh, for the entire spring. I go to every game home and road. Uh, you know, I watch the players play. I watch the team play. I, you know, I, I look at the pitchers. I go over to the minor leagues. I look at our minor league players uh, during the season. I go to our AA, A team to look at our prospects uh, develop. Uh, I, I go see the big club when I go to Cleveland. Once in a while, I go to Detroit. Uh, you know, it's not my show anymore, so I try to stay out of the way. I don't go to Detroit very much, but, uh, you know, I'm involved just the way I should be involved. And I'm really kind of a sounding board for the general manager if he wants to bounce something off me or. You know, of a trading trade, li- trade lines, something like that, or I was up for the trading deadline, and so I, I participate, but yet I stay out of the way, and I I really don't offer a whole lot unless I'm asked, and if I'm asked, then I give my opinion.
2: Yeah, the, the, the your your title is Jim Leland. That's all you need, right?
6: <laughs> well, I mean, basically, that you know, I, I'm just there. Like I said, I, I love it. I, I love the Tiger organization. I signed here as a kid, and. End up getting the, getting a the chance to go back there and manage that team. And, uh, you know, we have some great, wonderful games with the Oakland Athletics in the playoffs, great games. And it's been a thrill. So I, I love it. I still like it. And, you know, I watch the Tigers every day. Sometimes I watch two games. Sometimes I do watch Oakland at night or, or the Angels because Brad Ausmus is there. He's a friend of mine now managing there. And Bob and I have known each other for a long time. So, But, you know, we don't get to see him as much back on the East Coast. I fall asleep usually about the fourth any. fifth inning.
2: Yeah, I, yeah, no question. Our, our, bless him when our games are running long. I want to talk about your good friend Tony LaRusso. We just had him on the program recently. His 1989 team, we celebrated it, one of the great teams of all time. He's also going into the A's Hall of Fame. He's one of the great managers of all time. Just talk about the greatness of Tony LaRusso and your guys' relationship.
6: Well, uh, you know, Tony and I managed against each other in minor leagues, and then uh, he went to the major leagues that that same year in, in 1979. He went up to the major leagues and became the manager of the White Sox. Uh, I stayed back in AAA with the Tigers at the time, and a couple of years later when he was looking for a third base coach, he remembered me, and we had become kind of acquaintances. I don't think we were real good friends at the time. You know, we were acquaintances, but we got to know each other over the years, and we obviously became very close Obviously, one of my best friends, one of my mentors. Uh, he took me to the big leagues as third base coach, and uh, you know, there was a lot of people in the minor leagues that you know that made me a manager. But Tony La Russa made me a major league manager. There's no question about that. So I'm forever indebted to him for that. And, and you know, his record speaks for itself. He's possibly the greatest manager of all time, if you want to know the truth. I don't know. You know, I don't get into those kind of arguments about old players and younger players. But uh, he did, he, Tony was one of those managers that. You know, you can manage two or three days and really not have to do much. Sometimes the flow just goes just right, and there's, there's not really anything major. But the good managers are always ready for that situation that comes up so you don't get caught sleeping or caught napping. And Tony La never got caught napping. He, was all, he might go three or four straight days, not have any major decisions, and all of a sudden something popped up. He was always ready for it. Uh, he was so prepared, and he never got caught flat-footed. Uh, you know, he's just a credit to the game. He's a, he's a credit to the Oakland A's, the White Sox, Cardinals, obviously, and Hall of Fame manager.
2: Yeah, We've got a lot of interesting changes going on in our game right now, whether it's the ball and record home runs, whether it's the record number of bullpen guys being used. If you could change one thing that's trending in baseball right now, what would you change?
6: I would change two things. I would change the uh, – it makes me sick. The five-inning starting pitchers, that really bothers me, and the strikeouts, that really bothers me. Uh, I understand, you know, big home run guys have always struck out. There's no question about that. We understand that. But there's too many little guys striking out. It's not good for the game. It's not good for winning games late in the game when you have to execute fundamentally a fundamental hitting, a certain type of approach to hitting. I, I know home runs are attractive. I love them when I'm in it, just like everybody else does. But it's not all right to strike out in a lot of situations. There's a lot of times where you see everybody says it's okay to strike out, but it's not. You see a general manager sitting up in the block with a man on third and less than two outs and a guy pops up or strikes out two guys strike out. They're pounding their fists. They're upset. So, I mean, it's not okay. And the, and the idea of pitchers, uh, you know, throwing five innings with 100 pitches, to me this is ridiculous. Your best bullpen is a seven-inning starting pitcher. That's your best bullpen. That's never going to change. They can talk about all you want and the relievers are getting roughed up a little bit more this year because they're being used a lot, and the hitters are seeing them a lot more. It's not good for the game. When you, when you look at the teams that are going to go, you're going to see teams that have good starting pitchers. You look over there at Houston with Cole and Berlin and the horses they got over there. That's what you're going to see. Last year with with Boston, they had Sale, and they had Price, they had a ball, and they had all these guys. So I think that those are the two things that I really dislike about the game right now. Five-inning pitchers with 100 pitches after four and two-thirds and the other thing that bothers me is they, they lead the game 4-2 to in the fifth inning after the fifth inning, winning 4-2 to or losing 4-2, to and the media people and the announcers say, well, you gave his team a chance to win. Four or five innings pitching and giving up two or three runs, four runs, is not a good performance with 100 pitches. I, I don't care what anybody tells me. That is not a good performance. And to say that, well, you gave your team a chance to win, I, I think that's real misleading.
2: Jim, thank you so much for the time. An honor to have you on the program, and we'd love to do this again.
6: Well, thank you very much for having me.
2: The great Jim Leland right here on A's Cast Live. You kidding me? The success he had as a manager? Three-time manager of the year, World Series champion in 1997, and everybody in the game will tell you, just a super, super guy. And old school, too. You remember when he was managing back in the day, and they'd have the you know they would have the shots of him he had the cleats on he still wore cleats as a manager, smoking cigarettes in the dugout
1: that's why I call him smoking Jim smoking jim plus he was he was the manager of the most successful teams. I can say I've kind of seen in Pittsburgh well yep. I mean Clint Hurdle had three year a three-year, nice three year run, but yeah it's not, it's not really going well right now
2: Our audience really cares about the pirates and the hey we, early hey, we 90s. cover
1: we cover all. Thirty baseball teams
2: in the early '90s. Oh so yeah, and Pirates baseball. You want to go back to the '70s and we are family. About, start talking about Willie Stargell and Dave Parker and Bill Madlock and Kent Tekulve. Do you know there's
1: a field in Alameda named after Willie Stargell? He's from here. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like it's yeah. he. That's great.
2: Well, he star- there's s- the
1: tie into the Pirates in Oakland oh, in the Bay Area. Oh really? Yeah, I was in Alameda today. Yeah, you are talking about uh Another former Pittsburgh guy, Antonio Brown.
2: Yeah, I was uh, today was the first day. I if you don't know that uh, I do the I'm part of the Silver and Black show on Channel 2 on Saturday nights and also Sunday mornings comes on after the big college football game. I interview John Gruden every week. Used to be Jack Del Rio. Uh, talk about Antonio Brown. not going to be playing Monday night football. Kind of a mess. Actually, it went down to give you a little behind the shield. Get it. There you go. Nice show. I get, get it. Uh, it happened like 15 minutes before we were uh, going to tape the show.
1: Yeah, it was big news. I remember I was on my way up here, and I'm like, I'm, I'm, I see my phone, and I'm listening to the radio, and it's like, Antonio Brown, Adam Schefter, who breaks everything, he even does basketball stories sometimes, says that, uh, you know, him and Mayoka uh, they might get suspended. Him and Mayock went at it, this and that. Vontez Burfix holding him back. I'm like, wow, it's a, good Lord, what's going on in that situation?
2: Well, and then I had to, right after that, interview John Gruden. You'll see the reaction on uh, Saturday night. And then I was at CVS. So I went over to CVS there now. I was around all over Alameda today. Look at you, Mr. East Bay. I yeah, was Mr. Alameda today. I like Alameda. Uh, Carica Park, our sponsor, drove right by it on the way to CVS today. When are we going to get out there and play?
1: Uh, well, I don't golf, but I mean, we can get you out there. I'm not sure. I'm Of not the course project. you don't golf. You're a millennial. I love the golf? Pro- pro- I'm not the project manager of that. Who's the project manager of you? Car- might, you might need to talk to the Italian Stallion for that one. He, he's doing the golf course? He, I mean, he might to, nice. He might be able to help with that.
2: Okay. Of course you don't golf. Of course.
1: Uh, if you want to go play tennis, I'll go play tennis. Je- hey, I play tennis all the time with my kids. I live across from the park. I know. I play tennis all the time. When we, when, we do, when we rarely do a show from the remote, the Chicken Pie Shop Studios in San Jose, I see the tennis court.
2: Yeah, when's our next Santa? When are we, when are we getting on a – when's this team going on the road?
1: Houston on Monday.
2: Because then it becomes a home game for us. Okay, Jim Leland just said what everybody who actually has picked up a ball and done it says versus all the guys who want to tell you about analytics. And Once again, you know I love analytics, but there's certain things that I don't buy. And as Jim just said right there, what's your best bullpen? A starter that goes seven. Don't tell me cuz this is when I'll never forget. I camera we I, we never get to introduce it was it was it was a, it was a young guy. How I mean, remember the kid from fan he was a big fan graphs guy didn't like baseball reference.
1: Oh yeah yeah. When he said that I was like, "Huh?" I'm like, "I like both." But I mean, to say you don't like baseball references, hogwash. And, and, and,
2: and you said to him, you said, "Hey, to wins for a pitcher Mary goes, "Of course not. Look at DeGrom." And I said, "Oh, look at you guys and you're one outlier. Here's the reality. Nolan Ryan in 1987. Here's your reality. If you go deep in games and you don't give up runs, very few runs, you're going to win the game most likely. You guys have now been living in an era where you're cool with six innings and three runs, which is not a great start. It's a (laughs) eh start. And then you want – Other people to then pitch the next nine outs
1: to save your eh start. What about the guy that goes five innings and gives up four runs, but his team's leading five four? Do you you consider that a a quality performance? No. If he still gets to win, that means he's a good pitcher. Yeah, but how many of those happen? I mean, there are guys have Domingo Herman has a pretty high ERA and he has seventeen wins. Wow.
2: You know what? Right now, for guys, when you start looking at ERAs, it's yeah. <laughs> and I'm I, I'm holding. What am I holding in my hand? A baseball. I'm holding a baseball. Okay. Not only am I holding a baseball, I want you to think about pitching at Yankee Stadium, as the A's were just there. I mean, my buddy. I I've uh my buddy Mark Devlin is a huge Red Sox fan, right? Huge from back east. Huge, huge, huge. Well, he's not. His family is. He's from San Jose, but he's you know. They're from Boston. They're from Boston. Pack my cat and have it yad. He hates. He hated old Yankee Stadium. He hates. He goes because when you watch, because I'm not watching the AL East like someone who's like a Red Sox fan or what. You just flip those balls to right
1: field, they're out. This baseball right now at Yankee Stadium is a joke. It is, and you're seeing it with a lot of every Yankee starter. I mean, James Paxton was great for the Mariners last year. He's struggling with the Yankees. I got a perfect example. Sonny Gray struggled at Yankee Stadium. Oh, He was awful. He goes to Cincinnati. He has an error under three right now in the season for the Reds. He's like 275. Yeah, so if I look at a guy, oh, the guy's ERA is four.
2: Where's he pitching? And think, when you pitch in the AL East, Yankee Stadium's a band box? Boston's a band box? Now you can look at, okay, Right center at Fenway, or out in the left field to center, but down the lines, these are bandbox with a juice ball. Roger Center, Roger Center, Sky Dome, as I'll always call it. Uh, Camden Yards,
1: Camden Camden
2: Yards. Well, is a I mean joke. the Orioles
1: have already shown you it's a bandbox this year, but
2: it's been a bandbox since it opened. Doesn't matter what baseball, right? It's been a bandbox, yeah. and I got to tell you, Brady Anderson will tell you that in nineteen ninety six. Having now been to the Trop. So I've been to, so I went to the Trop with the A's this year. I, because people try to act like it was a pitcher's park. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but I always seem like people are like, oh, it's not. Whenever you're indoors and there's no elements. I mean, the bottom line is, the A when the A's were there when I was there, Tommy Pham, who's not the biggest guy in the world, hit an absolute bump. Once again, we're playing with a juiced ball. But getting back to what, what, what Jim says, what John Smoltz said on this program, who else said Mark Gubaza, all these guys who have pitched will tell you, you can't tell me the win doesn't matter. You can't. And when a guy goes out there, I mean, l- look at why does Verlander win games? Because for the most part, Verlander hands the ball to the better relievers at the end of games, because he's gone seven. You know what I'm saying? Like the old school guys, they're handy. They normally didn't hand the ball, but if they did, they gave it to only one. I'm giving it to Raleigh Fingers because I'm Catfish Hunter and I win eight innings. So it's like to me, I think it's weak that we go, oh, you can just have, you like Jim said, oh, you go six innings and you're out of there. The fact that, We've been happy with our pitching staff this year, guys going six, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, we're, Dodgers, we're, the Dodgers made it a five-inning uh, five thing for them a couple years we're ago. Ha- we're happy about it. We're, this, we're happy about it. What people forget is this all started with the Royals a few years ago when they have guys go six innings and they hand it to Holland, Herrera, and uh, Wade Davis. Those are the three guys. Just go six. They tell they – tell, um, who was But James Shields, go six innings. We'll take care of the rest. And Leland said it. He goes – he hates this idea of guys going five innings either – Get leading four two or down four two, and it's they they put their team in a chance they gave their team a chance to win. I agree. I completely agree. I hate that notion that a guy goes out there gives up four or five runs, and he and, and he gets out the game, but yet you know, or even he leaves the game going five innings, only five innings, and the team's winning four two, and it's like oh yeah, he gets the win. Like, I I, I kind of agree with Jim on that. Like if I, that's why I like the six innings, even the seven seven innings, two earned runs or less idea of for a quality start.
2: I would like to put together. A large sample size. Now, I will not be doing this myself. If you want to do it fine, knock yourself out. Or maybe Sarah Lang's put the challenge to
1: her. I was literally thinking,
2: like, we should ask Sarah what she thinks will be a quality. So you, we, we, we could – she's probably not listening right now. So she's a super researcher. Show me – let's pick a number that we both can agree on. Innings and earned runs. I, thought we, I think seven and two is not bad. So, how many guys went seven and two? So, seven innings and two earned runs in the last five years.
1: And what's their record? Because we talked about this like last week. We looked at Verlander, how many times he went seven innings and gave up three runs or less. I think he's like nine and three in those games. Yeah, you're gonna win the majority of those games. Yeah. One of them, uh, we can add that to ten. He did uh he had a no hitter the other day, so he won that game. So that's what so that's whenever,
2: you know, and I you know I love me some Brian Kinney in the MLB now, and they're all and every and every one of the writers now has to kowtow and goes, I know we I know we don't think the win matters. You can't tell starting pitchers that. You never hear you're never gonna you're never gonna hear Brian Kinney say that to John Schmoltz. Smoltz won't have it. So that's why I want to come up with a number and say if I go seven innings and only give up two, or if I go seven innings and only give up three, I mean, can you imagine what the number increases when I go eight innings and only give up two? Then you'd see, well, that's the kind of – you have those kind of starts. Now, obviously, those kinds of starts are going to be tough to have in modern-day baseball with a couple different things. A, the strike zone stinks. We've established that. We know the entire strike zone is not being called. It's a hitter strike zone. And I can tell you, if you watch classic games, go back and watch that classic game, Sandy Koufax.
1: God, what was that, 66? 60, the World Series against the Twins, right? Yeah,
2: 60. I want to say 66 or 65. I one time watched that classic game. I think it was game seven.
1: Would have been 67.
2: Sixty-seven.
1: And Sandy Koufax is mowing down. No, I was wrong. That's not They played the Orioles in sixty-six. The Dodgers did. What? 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 what year did they play
2: the, the uh, Twins? The, the Twins. It's in the sixties. Maybe it was sixty-five. Yeah, this nineteen sixty-five. So if you ever you probably on YouTube watch highlights of it, Sandy Koufax is throwing a fastball at the letters. Strike. Sandy Koufax is throwing a 12 6 hard curve ball at the bottom of the zone at the knees. Strike. There was a strike zone back then. And you could throw inside and intimidate guys to where now you can't. What? What do you got?
1: Koufax won 26 and 8 in 1965 with a 204 ERA. But wins don't matter for a pitcher. Through a league high 335 innings a year. Wins don't matter for a pitcher. Oh, that's what's now that was the second of three Cy Young yeah. Awards.
2: Hey, uh, I wonder how many starts he only went five.
1: Uh, probably not many. I, I, I don't like that they don't list quality starts on baseball reference. Well, we, 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 our definition of a quality start stinks.
2: What, six and three? Yeah. Yeah. That stinks. I would, I would, I would go seven and three. And then, then that would put something of value on what you call a quality start. By the way, I heard the nickname for our next guest that we're going to get to. They called him Coliseum Jesus. (laughs) He is one of the great, he is a great A. The man that's been running this building for many, many years. Dave Renetti. He walked by the other day and we were like, hey, you haven't been on the program yet. We are going to talk Japan. We're going to talk sushi. Monster Trucks. The Coliseum. How he still has a landline. <laughs> how he has a landline. By the way, I did that in my uh I did that in the fifth inning when I did my hit promoting the show today. I said, hey, he's the first guy we're gonna have on who has a landline in his home. And then even Quark goes, he's got a landline. I don't have a landline. Vince has a landline, and Michael J. Barrett has a landline at their house.
1: Cork does. That. I remember I asked him for it because the phone kept cutting out. I was like, Ken, do you have a landline? No, I don't have one.
2: I actually have a landline at my house. It's because it came with the package that we have.
1: That's why most like my parents just got rid of theirs because it was part of the package.
2: Yeah, it's part of the package. Because i got to have, for, because of the Chicken Pie Shop, Walnut Creek, San Jose Studio, I've got to have certain make sure my internet is strong enough for us to be able to broadcast out of and that whatever i whatever they sold me on had a i don't even know what the number is at my house
1: it's in the closet i bet you it starts with 408 it's a 408 <laughs> number yes
2: i had seriously i have I have a landline at my house i have no idea
1: and every once in a while it will ring and it'll be like where the where's that cuz we all just use cell phones and, and like i think it was like prevalent like you know 10 years ago landlines were so important and even going back before, but you had to have dial up internet, so you had, you had to have a, have a landline. Now, if you ask a Gen Z, someone like Joey or someone that we you know that we work with that's born after 2000, they probably don't even know what, what, what a what a landline is. What is that?
2: What, you you have a phone
1: that has a cord connected into the wall. Wait, you're telling me you could talk on a phone and walk into the kitchen, and it's not a cell phone? What? <laughs> yeah, there, was a, there there was a phone
2: with a rotary dial. Look it up. Coming up next, he's the king of the collie.
0: This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. Marshall, going back, looking up, he will watch it fly. And 29 other MLB clubs. 2-2
5: pitch on Trout, and he
0: blasts one. Way back, goal! Cody Bellinger hits one out. He Four, so he's your home run derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe, from spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments. We have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's A's Cast
2: Live. Here's Chris Townsend. We're still here at the Coliseum. It's myself, Commander Cody, and Seagulls. That's all that's left here at the Oakland Alameda Coliseum. I always love doing the show as as the sun is starting to change and the shadows are starting to change. And just being here, just being at the old yard every it's so much better than being in a studio. Studios are awful. You can't wait for the end of the show. (laughs) You can't wait to get out. So that's why being here at the stadium, this is our studio. It doesn't get any better. It's now time for a little green and gold history here on A's cast. And a good friend, VP of Stadium Ops, and a lot of you who are A's fans, and you come to a lot of games, you know him personally because he's been doing this for a long, long time. Dave Renetti now joins us. Dave, how are you, my friend?
5: You know, I'm basking in the glory of a big win right now, my friend.
2: Well, I'll tell you what is so refreshing to know that you have a landline. Uh, My God, so many cell phones now and the interviews break up and you got to call people back. I can't tell you how refreshing this is.
5: It's one of those rotisserie phones, you know, uh, uh, with the cord and everything. It's awesome. Does your cord reach all the way into the kitchen? No, I had, to, I had to get extensions to get all the way from the kitchen to the couch here. It's, it's awesome.
2: <laughs> well, tell everybody how long you've been with the A's and what exactly you do for the A's in the Coliseum.
5: Well, um, I always say that I've uh, spent my entire adult life here uh, with the Oakland A's. I started in 1981, so this is my 39th season with the A's. And that is, uh, you, you talk
2: about a hell of a run.
5: It's been a great, great run. I've been through so many great teams and so many great uh, times and great games and just met a ton of great people along the way. So I've loved every bit of it.
2: And your job is just not the A's. Your job is the Coliseum, correct?
5: Well, I focus on the A's, and I focus on the A's interests, but I interact with everybody. I interact with the Warriors. I interact with the Raiders. I interact with the facility, uh, management folks. I interact with the police. I interact with Bart. I interact with all the entities that, uh, that we use at our games. So I, um, I have a, uh, just a wide range of, uh, different groups that I, uh, that I deal with on a daily basis.
2: What is it like running a facility like this that has so many events a year?
5: Well, I, um, you know, when we, we have our annual meetings, I talk to my, you know, my comrades and other, uh, other teams and I tell them about the things that we go through here in Oakland and it's, it's unique that I could say that. Um, so, you know, with, with us, we have the challenge of sharing the facility with, um, with different events. Um, and, uh, so it's, it's a, it's a challenge, but it's something that we're prepared for. But, uh, it's just different than any place else. A lot of a lot of other um, teams they deal with the 81 or so baseball games during the regular season, and that's it. And we deal with you know our 81 games plus we dealt with you know several Warrior games with their their recent run, and we deal with the um, with the Raider games, and there's a bunch of other events in the arena that happen as well. So we uh, we just you know we roll the dice and we just we take we handle it home stand by home stand and just deal with what comes at us.
2: Yeah, it really is a, a remarkable facility if you look back to what it was built for years ago. Now, everybody wants their own digs, but back in the day, that wasn't the case. And pretty much everywhere you went, you had a you had a dual facility for, for baseball and football. And a lot of times, the arena was really close. So even though we're the last facility that does football and, and, and baseball, you can go all the way back to – Fenway Park had the Patriots and the Red Sox. Yankee Stadium had the Giants and the Yankees. Wrigley Field was a dual facility for the Chicago Bears and the Chicago Cubs. And then it started to get more modern, you know, in the 60s where they started to build it, whether it was here, Candlestick or San Diego, uh, Atlanta, everybody had that. Even the domes were like that for the Vikings and the twins. So even though people look at this now, like I can't believe they're doing it. Well, at one point, basically everywhere you went around the United States, the facility was like this.
5: Well, it was mostly, I mean, a lot of it started when Camden yard was put in and which I think was around 1992 or so. Um, And right after that happened, then you saw a lot of baseball teams have their own baseball only stadium. But prior to that, a ton of teams shared facilities with football um you know philadelphia and cincinnati and uh san diego and a whole bunch of them did so you know now now it's down to us but but during the time of my you know career in the beginning part of my career a lot of uh a lot of uh, facilities shared uh, had shared tenants in there
2: and i think about your relationship with the fans so many of the fans know you personally what is that like when like when i when we put that you were coming on one guy put out on Twitter, he's Coliseum Jesus. I mean, it's, it's funny all these nicknames that you have. But what is it like your relationship with this great fan base?
5: Well, I've you know I've grown with them, and I've never heard that by the way, Coliseum Jesus. That's a new one for me. Um, but um, I've I've grown you know I've grown with these people. So you know, and I listen to them, and I and I interact with them, and I uh, you know we talk about baseball, we talk about all kinds of stuff, and. I I walk I'm in my office a lot but when I walk around the stadium I'm stopped like every 5 feet it seems like to talk to our fans just because I know them and uh you know they they a lot of times they want to talk about the game and and right now it's great cuz everyone's pumped up about what's going on uh but you know they'll talk to me about concerns they have about the facility or an upcoming promotion or what time the gates are going to open on a certain day or you know uh, an experience they had at the ballpark but I enjoy it because, you know, I've uh I just I I like the people. You know, the the thing about the teams are the teams change over the years, the players change, but these are people that have been there since I started. These are fans that that come all the way through. So, you know, they they've shared with me all the experiences along the way.
2: Yeah, that's when when you think about all the years that you've been here, as your life has changed, they've watched your life change and you've watched their life change. That's pretty special.
5: No, it's 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 really cool cuz you uh you get to know them, you get to know their kids, you get to know, you know, um everything about them and uh and it, it's not a, it's not a small number that I know. There's I mean there's a large number of people that I know that uh they come to our games and uh I mean I'll I'll be out and about in my hometown of Pleasanton. I'll go to a farmer's market or I'll go to the store and I run into people all the time, and, uh, you know, they know me as the A's guy, but it's also cool to see them because it's, it's just uh, it's great to uh, – it's, it's, a, it's a great uh, relationship I have with these people.
2: And when you think about the new regime, as you said, you talk to people. This new regime with Dave Cavill and Chris Giles, the way they listen to the fan base, is it far different than anything you've ever experienced?
5: it is uh it is more interactive than i've in my entire career here for sure um you know we uh you know with with twitter and and with the the social media it's it's easy for our fans to reach out directly to everybody and you know a lot of times i'm involved in 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 responding to people that you know stuff will go to dave or chris and uh, if it's stadium related it comes to me and then i get a hold of the fan and, or someone from my staff gets a hold of the fan and and uh, we, our goal is to address things immediately and fix them immediately, so that uh, you know that we could uh, make sure the fans have the greatest experience here.
2: So I remember when we were in Japan and we were talking about, hey, the Coliseum's changing. There's, you know, the treehouse was the first experience uh, that that we got to see with the change, and and this experience, uh, the the treehouse definitely worked. And then we got to hear about different things that are going to be going on what was it like when you started changing copla boxes the budweiser deck when when you heard the changes what was that like for you and what was it like to implement it in such a short time
5: well as you know from being with me in in the japan i left to go to japan in a really key time where everything was kind of coming together So we really only had a a little more than a month and a half to do all those projects. And, uh, I was, uh, I was nervous going to Japan and leaving everything, but my contractors are incredible and I had full trust in them to get everything done. And they did such an incredible job. They always do for us out there. And, uh, so this all started with the treehouse uh, before last season. And it was basically Chris Giles called me and, you know, middle of the baseball season said, What do you think about doing a treehouse? And I said, Okay. And uh so the original concept was was more of like the Disneyland Swiss family Robinson treehouse kind of thing. And as we delved into it a little bit more, that didn't make any sense. And you know, it took us a while to come up with, with what we actually ended up with. And I'll tell you what, what a great addition. I mean, we took an area that was dead. There was nothing going on there right now, and it's the liveliest place in the stadium. and uh, And then this year, you know there was it was a daunting task to give us to give you know to have all these projects in such a short amount of time uh, done at the stadium. And uh, you know we did it. We knocked it out of the park, and they're all great additions to the stadium. And I feel strongly that other stadiums are going to take a look at it and they're going to try and adopt some of the things we did here because we, we're cutting edge for sure, and they're uh, they're going to take these things. And, and as as you've been seeing, um, our fans really like these destination places and these cool gathering places, and uh, you're going to see a lot more of that in, um, in stadiums and ballparks around the country moving forward.
2: Yeah, I'm looking at a stomping ground right now, and I just think back to when I used to bring my kids and they were little – and thought wow what a perfect place that would have been for parents that have little kids that still want to watch a game and have a libation and 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 all the different things that you've done i mean when you now look around the stadium as a guy who's been running the stadium and you look at all the changes how proud are you of these changes
5: i'm ex- i'm extremely proud cuz i have my stamp on it so i know that um since i've been there i put my stamp on the Oakland Coliseum and I think people know that and but, but all the things that we've done are not they haven't been uh you know halfway. They've been full board and they've been great additions and uh we put a lot of time and a lot of a lot of resources into getting these things done and we listen to the fans and these are the kind of things that they want and uh I mean I they've all been incredible and I'm really, really proud of all the things we've been able to do.
2: Now I don't know if you can tell us this, but of course, there's a few more years left in this park could we see even more changes coming in the future
5: well i know every year we talk about things that we can do at the stadium and uh you know we're in initial talks right now of some things that we uh that we would look forward to uh, look to do next year don't have anything real concrete yet we did so much this year that uh, i'll be honest i can't see us matching what we did this year i mean there's so much done but we still want to listen to what fans like, and we still want to take a look at areas to improve, and we'll continue to do that. I would imagine as long as we're in our current ballpark, we're going to continue to, to make it uh, you know, better each year uh, by, by doing things.
2: You know, one of the things that I've always been fascinated by is that time of the year where, like, it's monster truck time, and the amount of dirt that you have that people really don't see, they don't know about. You know, you rip up the baseball field. Football is gone, and you bring it. Do you know exactly how much dirt you do bring in?
5: I have no idea. I just know it's a, it takes forever to get it in there, and it takes forever to get it out of there. Um, and uh, it's there for a long time. It's there for a couple months, and uh, it's uh, you know it just you know it completely changes the scope of the of the facility. You know for a couple months, so I have no idea. I just know they keep bringing truckload after truckload after truckload in you know it always gets a little dicey because it comes in and then it has to come out pretty quickly because we need to get the the field in for baseball and that usually needs to be done right about the first week of of uh, march so it's ready for the baseball season and if we have some serious rain during that time right after say the last dirt show that's the 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 dirt all turns to mud and you can't get it out of there so we've been fortunate over the years to get uh to, to have decent weather to get it all out of there. But it, it can be dicey down there sometimes.
2: I mean, I'm looking at the field, and I know that a lot of opposing teams come in and say, turf-wise, the field is one of the best fields in Major League Baseball. It's hard to believe you guys are able to make this field look the way it does knowing that how much dirt and everything that is is here—it's unbelievable.
5: They they just our, – our groundskeeper, Clay, is the best. He's the best out there. he's goes through more than anybody else I know as a groundskeeper. And they know where to get the grass. They know the best grass. They know how to prep it. They know how to get the field ready with the, you know, take out the old stuff, put in the, the sand and everything else they need to do. And, and they do an incredible job every year. And I've seen it done before
2: when I'm doing a Raiders post-game show and I'm seeing the football field being torn down because you now have to build it back for baseball, isn't it truly amazing also how they do that and how fast they can do that? Because the way this stadium was built and everything, this is not the modern technology going here.
5: Well, when in uh, when the Raiders first came back in uh, 80 or 96, 95, 96, we had no idea how that was all, this was all going to work because it, it wasn't a hydraulic system with the, with the, uh, with the outfield stands um, like they had at the old Candlestick. So it was something that they had to, you know, it's, it's very labor intensive and um, equipment uh, intensive to get the stuff in and out. And the whole deal with getting the bullpens out, I mean, the, um, the mounds out for uh, the regular mound and the bullpen mounds, and it's a process. And you know, going through it back in uh, in '96 uh, was a real challenge because we never did it before. But there's been years of experience in doing it, and it's it's a seamless process. It's a ton, I will tell you, it's a ton of work by a ton, by a lot of people, um, especially when there's a quick changeover like we have. I mean, we're gonna have a baseball game on Sunday, followed by a Raider game on Monday. So there's a lot of people that have to come work overnight to do all kinds of things to get the place ready for football. And then the following Sunday after the Raider game on the 15th, the same thing happens where a ton of people have to get it back for baseball because we play on the 16th. So it's a ton of work. It's a system. It's, there's a process. There's a plan. And everyone knows what, what to do to execute it.
2: Where do all the stands that come out for football on the opposing sidelines, where are all those stands?
5: They are currently in Lot B, and they uh, rest there in Lot B uh, basically from um, mid-February through August when we have to take them back and forth. But as we sit right now, they're they're out in, the, uh, in Lot B on the south side of the stadium.
2: And we just saw one of the stray cats that lives here at the Coliseum walking right by home plate. Uh, how many stray cats do we have living here at the Coliseum, and where do they go when everybody's here?
5: You know, I I I know we have cats. Uh, you know, people have reported the, the uh, possums. They've been out here. We've had we've had different type of animals out here for years, and they know where to hide. I don't know where they are. They know where to hide. Uh, sometimes they're underneath the uh, stands. Sometimes they're in some of the nooks and uh, crevices of the stadium but they're smart enough to know when to stay away and when to come out.
2: Yeah. Cause this kitty just came running by and I'm like, Oh, I think I've seen that one before. See that's what happens when you do post game shows and shows and everybody's gone. You get to see what really happens at the Coliseum when people aren't here.
5: Well, as you know, we like myself and even yourself, we're here when there's nobody here more often than when there's people here. So there's a lot of things that are going on in this place when nobody's here. And, uh, Sometimes you get surprised by some of the things you see. Well, one of the
2: great things that's happened the last uh, two trips to Japan was hanging out with you, my friend. How much fun have we had in Japan?
5: Beyond belief. <laughs> it was just an absolute blast, beyond belief.
2: <laughs> Not the We can't have. And the that.
5: funny thing is that that, and I told you this, is that we hung out in Japan like you know constantly, and then we didn't, you know, then we see each other at the games. We don't hang out at all. And then, so we have to wait for the next time we go to Japan to hang out again. So yeah, yeah. we'll see when that happens again.
2: Real life gets in the way.
5: Yes, it does.
2: You know what? You're one of the best. And when we talk about grade A's and recently we just did green and gold history with Steve Vucinich, uh, Mickey Morabito has been done. You guys are like a Mount Rushmore of people who have worked for the athletics, the service you have given. You've given your life to this organization. You truly are one of the great A's. Thank you for coming on. We appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you tomorrow here at the yard.
5: I appreciate you, and I appreciate everything you guys are doing. And uh, I'm looking forward to this weekend. It's going to be awesome. So everyone listening, come on out. It's going to be incredible all weekend long and for the rest of the season. Thank you, Dave. Thank you very much. Take care. VP of Stadium Ops, Dave Rinetti.
2: He is an A's legend. There's no question about it. And it's it, it truly is one of the great things about doing green and gold history is when you get to talk to Steve Vucinich, who's been here since 1968. You talk to Dave Rinetti, who's been working here since 1981. Talk to Ray Fossey, who played for the A's in the 70s, broadcaster in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, where we are today, celebrating the great history of the athletics and their nine championships and all their Hall of Famers. That's what green and gold history is all about.
0: Now back to A's A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend.
1: Well, that was pretty cool, wasn't it? You know, I've been here now for four months, and I think I've interacted with Renetti twice. I introduced myself to him, and then I saw him the other day when I told him, hey, look forward to talking to you on Thursday. That's, but he's everything from everything I've heard from everyone, he's a great guy. Oh, salt of the earth. He, uh, and that interview was really good. I'm glad we got to have him on. And that's part of what we want to do here with AceCast
2: and AceCast Live. Now, remember, A's Cast Live is this live talk show. A's Cast is the name of our streaming station 24-7. Is that you get to know everybody, that we want you to get to know everybody in this organization. You know, so much is about the players and the team, obviously. But as Dave said, and I can tell you, things change dramatically in professional sports. It all changes. And, you know, it's very rare that you have a Bill Belichick and a Tom Brady and they're there forever. It's very rare that you have a player that's going to play, a Derek Jeter is going to play for 20 years. You know, Mike Trout will be one of those guys. But there's not a lot of those guys in baseball anymore. Not a lot of those guys in any sport. You may see it maybe a little more in the NBA. I, I, I wish we would see it more in baseball again because there was always something special that a Cal Ripken spent his entire career in Baltimore. you know, Or Jeter was always a Yankee or Tony Gwynn was always a Padre. These guys stayed with their organization their entire careers because a lot of great players didn't. The greatest player of all time. Some people would say, Babe Ruth didn't. Willie Mays didn't. Now, Hank Aaron. No, Hank Aaron didn't because he went to the Brewers. He went back to Milwaukee. He wasn't a brave his entire career. I I, I wish we would uh, get back to that. But we have more important things to deal with because she is, by far, if you are a baseball fan and you love Every team from a standpoint of knowledge. You may have your team, but if you love baseball and you just love knowledge about all of baseball, you need to follow on Twitter S Langs on Sports. Because Sarah Langs from MLB.com, and I I'm not blowing smoke, Sarah. Every single day, I'm taking your stuff and incorporating it into our show. You, by far, on a day-to-day basis, as a researcher on Twitter, you're the best in the game.
7: Thank you. Thank you. That's so kind of you. And thank you so much for having me on. Great to chat with you.
2: No, we, we love having you on. And, you know, right now where we are, Sarah, it's scoreboard watching time, right? We're looking at what's going on with the Jays and the Rays. Earlier today, Cleveland lost. This American League wild card hunt, it's a three-team race because I really don't think Boston's in it. It's Tampa, it's Cleveland, it's Oakland, and it's getting hot.
7: Yeah, it's really fascinating to me because, you know, I always like to look at strength of schedule, and the strength of schedule kind of doesn't really reflect the current playoff odds. So if you look at the chance to make the playoffs for the three teams we're talking about, the Rays, the A's, and the Indians, the top two chances are the Rays and the A's. So the Rays are at 72% right now, and the A's are at 71.6. And the Indians fell to 50.5% with that loss earlier where they got one hit. But if you look at the remaining strength of schedule, the Rays have the toughest remaining schedule. So that's where they are right now. But these things change day to day. So it's really interesting. I mean, you know, a week or two ago, I would have told you that I really thought it was going to be the A's and the Indians. Now it's feeling a lot more like the Rays, but we have to remember they're still going to have to play, you know, those tough AL East teams down the stretch. And, you know, the Indians have kind of a weird schedule where even though their strength of schedule isn't that bad, they have to play the Phillies, who are not really in it anymore, but that's a weird opponent, you know, in September. And they end the season in Washington, D.C., which is just like, you know, that's 2019. That's what we've had since the Astros moved to the American League when we've had 15 and 15, but it's so weird for a contending team to me.
2: What do you think about so many bad baseball teams out there right now are really helping decide the the races when you think of, you know, how well New York has done against Baltimore, and then you think Cleveland up against Detroit. Like the bad baseball teams is like how you feast on the bad teams may really decide maybe not so much divisions, but definitely wild card.
7: Yeah. You know, I mean, I feel like we've seen that, you know, I think it was the Phillies last year could not beat the Marlins. And essentially if they'd gone about 500 against the Marlins last year, they might've been in it at least further down the stretch with the Braves into um, winning that NL East title. And we've seen teams just have these inexplicable, you know, difficulties against teams. But then we see the other side too. I mean, Look at how the Yankees have, and it's no discredit to them because they're simply playing who they're scheduled against. But, you know, I think we can all say that at least their offensive numbers have been padded against the Orioles this year, right? And obviously they're done playing them. But, you know, you play who you have to. The Red Sox won so many games last year because they played the Orioles in part. And I don't mean to pile on the Orioles, but it's interesting. It's especially interesting in this age where it feels like there's such a discrepancy between the really good teams and the really bad teams, and maybe there are even more of those really bad teams around. But it's funny because I feel like, you know, you're on Twitter, I'm on Twitter. We see all these fans tweeting. And, you know, when the uh, Reds walked it off against the Phillies earlier today, I saw all these Mets fans tweeting, thanks, Reds. You know, even though the Phillies, I think, are out of it. I also think the Mets are out of it. You know, the idea that here we go, this team that isn't in it in the NL Central race, the Reds, took down this team that maybe is still contending. And you get sort of these, like, fun allegiances, which I think is fun. The
2: Mets, your Mets, you
7: think are out of it? Yeah, I I don't I I mean I don't I have a lot of trouble trusting teams with bad bullpens, which makes this year interesting <laughs> on the whole because I think there are a lot of really bad bullpens out there and there are going to be some bad bullpens to make the playoffs and you know, the Mets are not entirely the team that blew that 10 to 4 lead uh two nights ago in Washington DC, but they're also not a team with a lockdown bullpen. And it's been an issue all year, and their starting pitching is good. But, you know, I mean, pressure mounts, and pressure continues to mount on the starting pitchers when they can't leave the game, because if they leave the game, the bullpen might come in and, you know, blow the game. And that's true of a lot of these teams out there. I mean, I'm. You know, more concerned about the Cubs right now than I was a couple hours ago because Craig Kimberl just went back on the IL. So it's going to be a really interesting postseason. I feel like we're going to see a ton of runs, which, you know, I guess is very much reflective of what we've seen all year. But I don't think the Mets bullpen can get them even to, you know, one day after the season to September 30th.
2: A ton of runs and some really long postseason games. That's what's coming our way. Yeah. And, the Mets the other night when that stat of what eight hundred and six and oh when you're up six runs yeah <laughs> I mean it's just and but but you know what though like like the A's are tied for most blown saves with the Nationals I mean I started looking at bullpen ERAs and and they're just not good it's like everybody's bullpens taxed I. Are we seeing yeah. in your research historically bad bullpens just on a hole for all 30 teams when you start adding up the numbers?
7: It certainly feels like it. I mean, the national bullpen, I haven't checked their exact ERA lately, but for a while they were on pace to set a pretty bad record. And the Orioles were not far behind in terms of runs allowed and ERA and home runs and all of that. Even if you want to take home runs out of it, if you think that's something separate, just runs allowed um, in ERA. But You know, it's just interesting because I I was talking to Buster Olney about this the other day, but we were talking about relief pitching because uh, I did a little top 10 of the best pitches from relievers in the game right now, and we wanted to start it off with how many players have pitched and released this year, and obviously this includes position players, but there have been 660 different players to pitch and release this year, which is seven more than in any season in MLB history, and someone joined that list from when I said it on Tuesday, too. I don't know who. So, you know, it just feels like when teams are out of the game, they're really kind of giving up on it. You know, we've seen all these players. I mean, last year we there was a lot of focus of storytelling on the concept of position players pitching. We broke the record, all this stuff. We've already blown past that record this year, and nobody's even mentioned it because it's like, now this is just how the game is. And I do think that all of those things lead to – what we've seen with how many runs, not even just the home runs, but just all the runs being scored and how the game has been played. I mean the position players I don't have it in front of me, but it's not a good ERA. It is in the five. Not everybody is a, you know, Russell Martin with his zero ERA.
2: <laughs> yeah, he's he's actually fun yeah. to watch. You know, when Andrew Miller yeah. <laughs> was doing what he was doing for Cleveland in the postseason, and it got everybody fired up bullpenning and can you do this during the regular season? And we're now seeing more bullpen innings than ever before, and it's just chewing up these bullpens. Do you think these executives in baseball, who don't want their starters to go through the lineup a third time, but now they're seeing, because they're not, they're not, you know, they're, they're getting their starters out early and going to their bullpen, and they're seeing their bullpens absolutely chewed up, do you think there might be a sway back to, we got to have the starters go more innings because what we thought was going to work isn't exactly working.
7: Yeah, I mean, I think that would be a logical next step. I mean, I feel like I've had this conversation a bunch of times, sort of since that 2016 postseason, you know, starting with 2017. But the thing about that Indians postseason that I don't think gets mentioned quite enough is Andrew Miller was incredible that postseason and he wasn't the only one they had a lot of really really good relievers in that bullpen and they were well rested they were at the perfect time kind of in their season in terms of innings pitched and everything else and that's why it works so well and it's admirable to see these other teams go out and attempt to do that and I'm not talking about the opener I'm just talking about you know piecing together. The, bo- the back end of a bullpen maybe starting with the sixth or seventh as opposed to with the eighth and the thing is we haven't really seen a team assemble that big talented group of pitchers and what has happened when there has been you know a certain level of talent is that guys end up overused because of how everything else is going I mean I think the Yankees bullpen this year is pretty fascinating I've had this conversation with people a couple times in the last week where they're like, oh you know, what's the Yankees bullpen era? It must be best in the league. And it's like 4.04. It it might've changed. That was like two or three days ago, but it's in the fours and no one expects that. And it's not number one either. And I think everyone thought that they were going to be absolutely lights out adding Adam Ottavino and having Tommy Cayley in there, obviously a Chapman and just this entire group of guys, Zach Britton. And the truth is that even they have ended up overused in certain ways. And they've all been good in their own right. Maybe Chapman is a little off his game this year, you know, his something seems off there, but they haven't been that like 2.50 bullpen ERA that we were expecting to set all of these records. And I I just feel like we're not going to see that. It's just not how it is.
2: Yeah, you know, the Yankees, you look at their pitching, the A's, you know, we've seen them recently twice against the Yankees, and you just look at their starting pitching, does not impression. You think you can battle them with their bullpen, and it just, you know, we're not that far away from the end of the season, what the A's have, what, 23 games left, and you just think, in the American League, How are you going to be able to compete with the Houston Astros? Because we recently just had Jim Leland on earlier today. And as Jim, you know, old school said, your best bullpen is your starting pitcher. He goes seven. And then you you give it to only relievers in the eighth and ninth. Do you really see anybody really being able to compete with Houston in the American League?
7: I really don't think so. It's just hard to see another team beating them in a seven-game series. You know, I mean – I would think that they'd almost be more vulnerable in the short series because you can see guys come back, maybe a team that has less less depth. Like if the Indians were to make it, you could see, you know, Bieber and um, Clevenger and whoever else and kind of bringing that back within the five-game series. But in the seven-game series, I mean, they're toast, right? And it's just really hard to believe. But you know what? That also makes me think that they're going to lose in the first round because whenever you're so sure of something, it's never what happens, right? And, like, I picked the Astros to win the World Series this year, which means they absolutely will not do it. But it's really hard to make an argument for them not doing it.
2: Nah, we see them too much. We know what they got. (laughs) (laughs) And and what I like about the Astros and the approach really offensively, we know what they they can do from a pitching standpoint. But not only do they hit for power, but they make a lot of hard contact. So, in an era that the three true outcomes – home runs, walks, strikeouts, that's not who they are. They put the ball in play. They don't strike out, and they hit home runs. It's one of the reasons why they're so dangerous. How much of the research have you done on them offensively?
7: Yeah, you know, I did a big piece about Michael Brantley a couple weeks ago, and everything that you were describing is essentially what he is. He's hitting the ball harder this year, which is, you know, atypical a bit for him but he's so consistent he has one of the highest contact rates he does not swing and miss that's just what he does and it it feels like a lot of these guys you know Jordan Alvarez is younger he strikes out more he's kind of an aberration but he hits for such great power that it doesn't matter and they've got these guys who are kind of just like stalwarts you know I mean Altuve has definitely been playing better lately Yuli Gurriel is so underrated and hits for average so well Brantley obviously hits for average. He's right up there for the batting title. He's in a little bit of a slump right now, but I would still believe that he could potentially win it or finish second. And Alex Bregman is like an outstanding hitting talent. So they're just so deep. I mean, the fact that they called up Jordan Alvarez, the fact that they had someone like that waiting in the wings to come up and hit all the home runs that they were missing, you know, in the middle of the season is just, Completely blows me away, and I think that they're really, really good, top to bottom. Now, of course, I'm watching them right now, and they gave up. Uh, Wade Miley and company gave up seven runs in the first two innings, and they're down seven three right now. But even still, it was seven nothing. It's seven three. You never know. It just feels like they're never out of the game.
2: So, Cody, my producer, and I, Cody, we're trying to we're trying to figure out because there's this new, not not necessarily so new, but this whole thing that pitchers and their record doesn't matter. And we talk to a lot of guys who pitched in the big leagues and they say, well, that's great that you say it, but they don't believe it. And I'm kind of with them because I think from the standpoint, you know, we've developed this uh, quality start at six innings and three runs, which is not really a quality yeah. start. So no. <laughs> I, would, I would like to know, and I don't know how we go about this, And maybe here as a think tank, we can figure it out. What really should be a quality start? Should it be seven innings and two earned runs or seven innings, three earned runs? Whatever that number is. And then I'd like to go back a year, two years, maybe five years. How many pitchers got to that really, uh, that mark? And what would their record be? Because I think it'd be way over 500.
7: Yeah, I I love that idea. I feel like that's something you see people toying with on Twitter sometimes. Like, I don't know. I would think what's an average start for a really good pitcher? So not the absolutely outstanding, close to no hit stuff, but like a pretty good start from a Max Scherzer is probably uh, definitely seven innings. I think that we absolutely would need it to be a higher innings uh, threshold than it currently is, or the lowest threshold. I think yeah, two runs, three runs, even seven runs. And uh, I'm sorry, seven innings and three runs sounds like you're giving your team a really good chance to win. And to the point of wins, I think that this is something where a lot of times the ideas of some of these maybe newer ideas that people who research the game and never played like myself have, whether it's newer statistics or newer concepts like, hey, pitcher wins don't matter, I feel like there's sometimes this divide where players or former players just think that someone is, you know, coming in and trying to dispute what they were told all their lives. And I, I I can't speak for everybody, but I can certainly speak for myself and say that, you know, that's not the point. I I understand why pitchers value their pitcher wins, and not just because they want their personal stats, but I understand that that gives them a sense of, hey, I helped my team win the game. But I think that there's just a happy medium of, you know, looking at how often the team wins when that pitcher pitches. And if for that individual, knowing that he got the win, is that important, then, it's probably going to match up. I mean, I know that Jacob deGrom last year obviously had the season where he had the same number of wins as Lucas Giolito, who was the worst pitcher in the majors and all those other kinds of things. But for the most part, we're really not going to see records stray that much from sort of your eye test of how that pitcher was that year. Again, there are extremes and we don't see guys winning, you know, even 20 or 30 games these days. So in terms of the raw quantity, maybe it's a little different. But like if a guy had a good season, he was probably like, I don't know, 17 and 7-ish. And like I'm okay with citing that record if that helps the pitcher and the team and those kind of on that side of the game appreciate it as a good season. But I'm going to look at other numbers as well. But I I think that sometimes people go very overboard in disputing wins. And, you know, I'll, I'll do that sometimes too, but it's never to discount what people think is important because ultimately we're all analyzing this game however we want to. Right. And I'm never trying to tell somebody that they're wrong about their opinion. And I do know that pitchers, a lot of pitchers who are still pitching still feel very strongly about that.
2: Yeah. And it's always the outlier. Everybody always wants to go to your guy Degrom, Grom
7: and I go, yes, there's,
2: there's outliers in life, but I can tell you this. If I look at the greatest pitchers of all time who have great analytics and metrics Guess what they also have a lot of? Wins. Yeah.
7: Yeah. So, exactly. I mean, it's, it, it's that it's that it's looking at all of it, you know? So you're citing like, "Hey, they have other great metrics too and they have the wins." Like as long as you're kind of looking at all of it and cuz the one thing the win doesn't necessarily tell you is other than that he got to this point that he was eligible for it, it doesn't tell you exactly how he pitched, right? So that's why you want to take into account the ERA or something else so that you have a fuller picture of exactly what happened in that game, that season, whatever else it is.
2: Let's end on this. I always like to ask people who do a lot of research and know a lot about analytics. What's the number one analytic you look for in a player on offense and what's the number one analytic on defense? I mean, excuse me, for pitchers.
7: So one thing that I really like to look at um, these days with hitters is something that we have on our stat cast on our baseball savant, like player pages and all over the site, which are the expected stats. So what those are, are, they're based on quality of contact, which is essentially launch angle and exit velocity. But it's not just, oh, you need the highest launch angle and highest exit velocity, because that's another thing that people run into that isn't correct. But it's looking at how often you achieve the ideal combination, which leads to extra base hits, which isn't necessarily the highest of those two combined. It could be lower and, you know, whatever this launch angle and that exit velocity, as opposed to just hundred and, you know, 42. So when you look at the expected stats, there's expected batting average and expected slugging percentage. What they'll do is they'll calculate essentially what the batting average should be based on that contact that the player has made. So we have things like expected batting average on any given batted ball will tell you essentially how frequently a batted ball with that launch ankle and that exit velocity turns into a hit. So it kind of takes all of that into account and tells you what the guy sort of should be hitting. So if there's someone, a great example actually is Brian Reynolds who's on the Pirates who's you know a lot of talk lately because he could win the batting title, he's very close to it. And when he first came up, I was talking to Keith Law about him on a podcast, and, you know, the question was, is he for real? And at the time, he was hitting around 330, and his expected batting average was right around there. So I was making the point that, you know, it's not like he's getting lucky. It's not like he shouldn't be doing this. Basically, the stats and, you know, the next-level stats, if you will, are indicating that he should be doing this. And I think that you can make those arguments for a lot of different guys, and it's a really good way to see it's a – In my mind, it's a better version of the concept of of Babbitt, of batting average on balls in play. It's a better way to see if someone's getting lucky, if there's something happening with defense, anything like that. So that is my go-to for offense. And really on the pitching side, there those exist on the pitching side as well right opponent batting average opponent expected batting average and i'll look at those things and i'll look at fifth which is fielding independent pitching which also does the same thing essentially of kind of taking those wild cards out of it fielding independent pitching doesn't take defense into account and is telling will again tell you sort of if a pitcher has gotten lucky or whether he's gotten, you know, hurt by his, the defense behind him or something like that. So I like to look at those stats because I think that those give a clear view of what should be happening. Now, obviously, that isn't what is happening, but a lot of times those things can forecast what will happen, and they can forecast, you know, a guy who's having a great season sort of slowing down or a guy who's off to a slow start all of a sudden, you know, coming on the scene really hot.
2: She is the top researcher and baseball follower on Twitter at S Langs <laughs> on sports. I'm telling you, nobody better. And also MLB.com. Sarah, we love having you on. You're a treasure.
7: Thank you so much. It's so great to chat with you. I've got one question for you, if you have one more second. Yeah, go right ahead. before you had me on, were you talking about guys who uh, – Playing their entire careers with one team? Is that what you were talking about? I just heard the tail end of it. Correct. Okay, so when uh, Trout signed his extension, I actually wrote an article on MLB.com about the most war for a player to play his entire career with one team. So if you want to guess it, I will let you. And if you want me to tell you, I can tell you.
2: Uh, I would guess probably Lou Gehrig.
7: No. So the top one is a pitcher. Walter Johnson, 165.2 war. And the top position player, who's also number two, is Stan Musial, 128.2. Garrig is fourth, so very close. You're in the top five there. But uh, the idea was that Trout will end up on this list.
2: The amazing thing about Musial, the same amount of hits after all those years, he's got the the exact same amount of hits at home as he did on the road. Yeah. You'll never see that again.
7: No, such a cool stat, right? I love that.
2: Sarah, you're the best. We'll be calling you again soon.
7: (laughs) Thank you. Great to talk to you.
2: Sarah Langs from MLB.com. Follow her on Twitter at S Langs on sports. Seriously, when you follow her, it's all day long. She's coming up with stuff that there's no way you'd find it.
1: Uh, She's the best follow on Twitter when you need to find out anything. Uh, By the way, Verlander's uh – FIP. How is this? Isn't he any good? 15th in Major League Baseball.
2: Oh, he's... he's. 3.41. Do
1: you want to know who the leader is? Uh, We'll play a game. Like Sarah said, can you guess who the leader is in Major League Baseball? And FIP. No. Former teammate of Verlanders. Scherzer? Scherzer. 2.27, followed by old Charlie Morton at 2.79. So Scherzer's way ahead of everyone. Who would you rather have right now, this season? Because lately... Old Mad Max hasn't been so hot. Uh, Yeah, Scherzer hasn't pitched well, but I think if we're talking about this year. See, that's why I think. To me, it's a a push because I think they both have been incredible. And Scherzer's been hurt. Scherzer's been incredible? He's been hurt, though, too. If he he didn't go on the IL, he finished with more strikeouts than Verlander this year and a better ERA. He's pitching in the National
2: League. You get a free out every time through the.
1: No, you don't. Michael Lorenzen disagrees with you from the Reds. (laughs)
2: You're into the outliers. Let's go look at Max. What do
1: you mean Max. the Grom can hit home runs too? There's two guys. Max Scherzer. Madison and Bumgarner's on the phone. He can hit.
2: Max Scherzer. We're gonna look at Max Scherzer. By the way, there's an,
1: maybe we'll get into smart. There's an article from Five Thirty Eight. Everyone thinks Justin Verlander blogs in the Hall of Fame. So why don't the stats agree? Uh, he's going to the Hall of Fame, people. If you do, if you don't think see, Justin Verlander's is, is the Hall of Famer,
2: this is the problem with now analytics for people like. David Forst and the A's, they do it to win baseball games. Analytic people online and Twitter and everything, they do it basically just to degrade people. And we see so many players degraded, that's
1: unbelievable. Uh, Verlin is a career 334 ERA. Um, how is that not Hall of Fame worthy? Uh, Jack Morris, yeah. who we'll see tomorrow as a Tigers broadcaster, has an ERA close to four, and he's a Hall of Famer.
2: Let's see, Mad Max last start six innings, four earned runs. Ooh, oh! Before wait, where am I? August against a, how good? How good's Baltimore? Um, they're not very good. He went four and a third and gave up two. But he's Th- still he's still nine and five with a two five. Then against
1: Pittsburgh, he
2: went four innings and gave up one.
1: That's well, the Pirates. Uh,
2: <laughs> and then against Colorado, five innings and gave up three. One, two, three. So. Four of his last five starts, he didn't even go past five innings.
1: I don't think he's fully healthy either. Because remember how good he was at the beginning of the season. we were okay, talking. Okay, well, about...
2: go look at Verlander's numbers. How can you say he's as good as Verlander?
1: I'm just saying, if he didn't get hurt, I think they both are having incredible years. They both they win the they each win the Cy Young in, in each league. And I think like Scherzer, I'm trying to find out right now. What he, how he pitched in the first half before why, he got hurt? Hey, by the way, the article. Why are they saying Verlander's? I, I just saw for... the headline when I was typing in Verlander's name, so I'm going to try to read it and we can do more tomorrow. Scherzer by the, the way, fir- what's
2: the date on it?
1: It came out yesterday. Wow. So, by the way, Scherzer in the first half of the year, 9-5 with a 2-3 ERA in 19 starts. He had 181 strikeouts in 23 walks in 129 innings. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. And then he gets hurt, and, I mean, he hasn't even registered a decision since the second half when he came off the I.L. and being hurt. He's 0-0 with a 4-6-6 ERA and four starts in the second half of the season.
2: He's kind of a... He had two really good months, and then he's had, like, he was really, really good in May, really, really good in June. He was okay in April, and lately he hasn't been that great.
1: Do you want to do buying or selling today? When they need him most. I know. I mean, other guys guys have stepped up. No,
2: I love Scherzer. I'm
1: just saying, we, we ever... I had
2: I had that thing for you that Himbo put out. Another great guy to follow on Twitter about since Verlander was traded to the Astros. He's number 1 in every category. He's been really good. Strikeouts, innings pitched, wins, stri- Ks Ks versus walks, opponents batting average, opponents on-base percentage. He's number 1 since he got traded. And by the way, that's 2017, he was traded. He's number one in just about yeah. every category for a pitcher, American League and National
1: League. That's going on almost two years. That's going over two years. Well, we probably don't have time to get to it because we only have a couple minutes left for buying or selling. So I'll just ask you the question anyway. Steven Strasberg's expected to, uh, This is from our, our good friend, John Paul Morosi of MLB.com. Good friend, at, of at MLB Network and Fox Sports. John's saying that he believes that Scherzer's going to opt out of his contract this after this offseason, and he'll be a free agent. Scherzer? Or, sorry, Strasburg. Strasburg. Uh, buying or selling Steven Strasburg is a Houston Astro in 2020. They're going to lose Miley, who got roughed up today, gave five runs in the first inning to Seattle, and Cole's going to be gone, probably, to probably the Angels or Dodgers or whoever, Phillies. But I, I could see Strasburg at 31 being that guy who hasn't reached his full potential, who was supposed to be that guy coming out of San Diego State and Tony, with Tony Gwynn, the late Tony Gwynn, being a guy the Astros bring in, and they make him just 300 strikeouts every year. They, t- they, t- they t- turn him into the guy he should have been coming out of SDSU. Buying or selling? I'm probably selling. I don't know if Strasburg is – you're enamored with Houston,
2: and you should be,
1: but maybe not every guy wants to go there and play. I'm just looking at it from the standpoint they're going to need. I mean, they have Verlander and Granke who are both getting paid a lot of money, but you need another starter. Forrest Whitley struggled for them in the minors, like struggled this year, and he's supposed to be their top guy coming up through the system. Are they gonna Are they gonna spend the money? Well, we heard Jim Crane. If it, if it, if he helps you win, that's why they went and got Well
2: Why don't they just keep Cole if they're going to spend that kind of money?
1: Yeah, Cole will, 20, I think Cole will be 29, and uh, Strasburg will be 32 coming up soon. I can't believe he's going to be 32. Next, next, next season he'll be 32. I, 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 that still blows my mind because I'm going to be 31 soon, and I kept thinking Strasburg came up years ago, and he did, but he's only a couple months older than I am. Verlander went to Houston because he wanted a chance to win,
2: right? Yeah. And now you re-sign because you, you win there. But if you really told Verlander at the time, you can go anywhere you want. Do you think he's really choo- choosing Houston? Is Houston really a destination in Major
1: League Baseball? No, because who was the last big free agent to sign in Houston? It was probably, what, Roger Clemens? Okay, he's but he's from, but he's he, from Texas. He's, fr- he's from, that, he's from yeah. Houston. So, like, I'm thinking, like, the big free, free agents that – Andy Pettit, he's from Houston. Yeah, like he's from the The, the area. guys they got are, are – like, the big free agents they got are from the area. Like Houston's Texas are Texas guys. Houston's been a hotbed lately in all sports for analytics. So look at Daryl Moore. Buying or
2: selling. If Strasburg. If he opts out. And the Padres want to spend the money and he can go back home. Buying or selling is a Padre versus an
1: Astro. <sighs> selling. 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 I think he picks Houston. We got less than a minute, by the way. You just think everybody wants to go to Houston. Why wouldn't you? They They're ahead of the curve with everything. Player development. Pitching. Look, Jordan Alvarez is going to break Barry Bonds' record, who on this day hit his last home would run. You
2: rather, would you rather be an Astro than a Yankee? Yes. Right now? Why would you not? Playing in the Bronx on the biggest stage? I'd rather be an Astro. You'd rather be an Astro? Yeah. And play I'm in a th-
1: millennial. I, I've, I've, seen the, I've seen the Astros win more World Series than the Yankees lately. They've, uh, won, they've won the same amount. 15 seconds. We're, we're going to keep talking to be off the air.
2: All right, we will see you tomorrow. We are back live. What time are we on tomorrow? Uh
1: three. Three to four fifteen.
2: Three to four fifteen. Thank you for listening to A's Cast Live. Now just hang out and listen to Ace Cast. Actually,
1: the game's the game from today. We played again.
2: Oh, a great win coming up next, right here on Ace Cast.
1: This has been a
0: presentation of the Oakland Athletics.